The Cultists present Cinema of Cruelty. And this week on the Cinema of Cruelty, we ask the question, what happens when your billionaire husband dies, leaving nothing behind but cash, stocks, a large estate, and a homemade snuff film? Would you begrudgingly respect that the old codger was still insisting his custom porn orders be filled on Super 8 film stock? Or would you hire P.I. Nicolas Cage to hunt down the truth of underground homicidal art house sexploitation, footing the bill for a vengeance-fueled homicidal spree of his own? Well, let's find out. Because this week we are investigating Joel Schumacher's 1999 underrated and beautifully texturized time capsule of a film, 8mm. So sit back and turn your eyes to the screen as we travel back into that quaint seedy moment in time known as the underground hardcore porn trade at the brink of the new millennium. Brought to you by that underground patina, sassy German submissives, the affronted hierarchical morality of child pornographers, the glorious spectrum of light temperatures, the wonders of saran wrap, and Peter Stomer's apex embodiment of the one true velvet messiah. And of course our safe word today is, no, there is no safe word when it comes to snuff films. Anything to add, Benji? I mean, the catering on a snuff film, in my experience, subpar. Of course you'd be the asshole who signs on to do a snuff project for the food. You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of... Space! Boy! I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion. I see you shiver. Oh boy, London, how are we today? I'm great, because 8mm. Our first Nicolas Cage movie. I know, it's crazy that this, out of all the Nicolas Cage films, is our first Nicolas Cage movie, because this is by far not his cruelest work, but... This is Nicolas Cage at a very low-key kind of level. I mean, I think he's really good in this. Um, <laughs> it's a gag how often we we reference community on this, but there's that episode where Abed takes a class, Nicolas Cage, good or bad. I think this is the movie you watch. You're like, no, good. Nicolas Cage can act. I believe his acting style has been officially classified as neo shamantic is apparently the term. I think it's initially Cage's term <laughs> that he pitched himself, but I'm not actually sure on that who came up with that term initially, but that is now officially. Werner Herzog said something about him like, uh, he is an actor who applies the same artistry of the jazz musician to his performance. Yes, and Ethan Hawke has said that he is the first person to bring something new to acting since Marlon Brando. So these are all <laughs> high praises from different people. Now, Nick Cage is great. People who know me know I, I accept him as my personal lord and savior because I'm <laughs> a godless heathen. So we all need some sort of god. So why not a neo-shamantic, odd weirdo? Uh, what would you say makes this particular film cruel? I think this film has a very odd tone that people didn't necessarily know what to do with when it came out in 1999, and people still 
don't quite know what to do with it. It has a strange mixture of what almost seems like puritanical morality against porn and the porn industry. And yet this is directed by Joel Schumacher, who is very verbal and out about his love of pornography. And so that's an odd combination. There's also something strange and quaint about the time capsule of this movie. So anyone watching it, especially if they did not grow up in a pre-internet age, watch this movie and get very confused by the alleged illegal quality of the hardcore porn quote-unquote hardcore porn in this film. And so that's one thing that we will be talking about is whether or not this porn was illegal at the time or not. And yeah, there's just, there's a lot of weird mixtures of emotion. People did not like this film when it came out. I think it has a 22% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, although it did get three stars from Roger Ebert, so... I was gonna bring up Roger Ebert. Once again. Something about doing this podcast is actually maybe kind of respect Roger Ebert a little bit more. Roger Ebert was a mainstream critic who really was not afraid to go against the grain when everyone else hated a movie. I think that you could say a lot of the hatred for this movie is residual hatred for Batman and Robin, which was the movie Joel Schumacher did right before this. Oddly enough, I the last time I watched Batman and Robin, I fucking love that movie. Oh, it it's is so great. My kind of crazy. All right. But people still were really not digging on Joel Schumacher at the time. And I think that combined with the really dark content in this film and its focus on pornography was just a recipe for review disaster, I suppose. But uh, our boy Roger Ebert, he's, he got it, man. Ebert, just it's, if, if it's good enough for a Pulitzer Prize winner, by God, it's good enough for me. Yeah, I find that I have always liked Roger Ebert's reviews and felt a kindred spirit in the films that he did and didn't like although i yeah have also gained a an increasing appreciation for the man in terms of wow this is somehow turning into an unofficial podcast of all the movies that roger ebert liked when they came out that <laughs> nobody else did so yet another one yeah what did you like about this movie what is the best thing about this movie all right my best and the worst are actually going to be i think kind of personal ones but uh, my personal best for this movie is the texture of this film when watching it. There's just so much slime and mo moist surfaces and walls everywhere in this film, in the, in the good scenes anyway, that are shot so well and lit so beautifully that you just want to be engrossed in this strangely disgusting yet delightful world that our character goes into. Yeah, that's kind of my best, too. The, God damn it. It is a gorgeous film in its own right. It really captures the atmosphere of this world. And we'll talk a little bit more about Joel Schumacher's sensibilities when it comes to space and production design in general in his films. And this definitely feels like the classic Schumacher, not in the Batman Forever sort of sensibility, although we can kind of actually see some of the neon frenzy that comes through in Batman Forever, but this is a little bit more kind of classic Lost Boys Flatliners, Joel Schumacher, in terms of this attention to mm. the space that he's filming in. 
it's just beautiful. The texture is really beautiful. What's the worst thing about this film? For again, just for me personally, the marriage subplot. I understand why it's there, both thematically and for the plot. It's to give our character a place to go back to after he has gone through all the horrible things that he sees happen in this movie and he needs some sort of balance. But there are so many times throughout the movie where we get a call to his wife or a conversation with his wife. And I'm like, I don't I don't know what this is adding. Can we just get back to the action Get back to the good stuff. Yeah, no, that's fair. I don't like domestic arguments or squabbles. It's a very grating kind of relationship they seem to have. Although, that being said, my worst thing is still... And it's forgivable because it is an R-rated movie trying to show snippets of hardcore pornography and subcultures. (laughs) But the porn could have been better. We have these just moments, and this is going to get into this comical state of this movie in points where it's not necessarily supposed to be, and that we're getting these snippets of what's supposed to be this hardcore stuff, and you're like, is it though? But yeah, we'll we'll talk about whether it is or it isn't. Mm -hmm. I wanted them to push a little bit harder on the the porn sleaze. Yeah, I think for an R-rated film in 1999, they were pushing about as much as they could. Oh, and that's another interesting thing. So here, once again, we have an almost NC-17 rated film. So the first cut that they submitted did get an NC-17, and Schumacher had to work with the ratings board to cut stuff out so that he could get an R rating. And so there will be a couple of places that I will point out on the way through of cuts that they had to make, according to Schumacher. This came up on the director's commentary on... The film. So I did watch Schumacher's commentary for 8mm for this. So I'll be bringing some of that. Schumacher does a really nice commentary. He is an, a very, a very nice man, I have to say. He's so endearing. Oh. He's so endearing. I, <laughs> I will defend uh, that man with my life now. Uh, rest in peace, Joel. We love you, man. Yes, he, he did some great things for the cinematic world. All right. So the lightning summary of 8mm for those totally unfamiliar. We're going to have Nick Cage as a private detective, and a sweet billionaire old woman whose husband has just died is going to contact him because she's found a snuff film, potential snuff film, in his security safe. And so she hires Nick Cage to find out if the girl being murdered on this sexual 8mm reel is in fact an actual murder. And Nick Cage is going to get sucked into the world of sleazy, bi-coastal pornography of the underground, hardcore, illicit variety. And as we talk about this film, aside from you know us just gushing on scenes of the film because we love them so much, a few things that we'll bring up throughout Scattered will be London talking about snuff film. And myself, I also read the original draft of this uh, by Andrew Kevin Walker that's available on his website. Uh, He famously did not care for this film and had some differences with it, which I'll get into more detail later on. But I will point out a few minor differences as they pop up throughout the uh, discussion of the film. Yeah, I took some deep dives into the legal history of pornography in the U.S. and globally. My Google search history over the last... (laughs) You're on a list now, okay? Yeah, it's probably interesting. I'm like, illegal pornography snuff films or if we were sponsored by some sort of vpn company this would be like a great segue into an ad read yeah exactly 
All right, so let's get into this snuff and stuff. All right, we start off with a projector, as we should. Just a projector rolling, playing something. We don't even know what it is. Someone with cigar smoke sitting in the darkness watching something. We don't know what the hell it is. Just setting the mood that dark rooms and projectors, that's a theme. Then we get to the airport, land at the airport, and right away, this movie gives us what we want. The man, the myth, the legend, the forehead, Nicholas fucking Cage arrives. Yes, and this is where the texture really starts to set in. So they're filming in the Miami airport. This is just going to be a setup scene establishing the fact that Nick Cage is a private detective. He's right now working on a different case. But the lighting in this scene. So... (sighs) Lighting is going to be something to pay attention to throughout this film because the cinematographer did this gorgeous job of establishing light tones and temperatures for the different spaces. So this is going to be theoretically happening in a couple of different geographical locations across the U.S. And we find that right now in Miami, we've got a lot of peach light. So they're really setting up these kind of peach orange filters. Nick Cage's home is going to be technically filmed at a property in upstate New York, but is supposed to be set in Pennsylvania, where the screenwriter, um, Andrew Walker, is from. And so we get this very blue-gray steel light in all of the Pennsylvania or the Harrisburg, Pennsylvania scenes. We're going to get green filters when he goes down to North Carolina to interact with Mary's mother. And then we're going to get gold filters out in Los Angeles and then just total pure gray filters in New York. And so we can immediately distinguish throughout this film what location we're in by the subtle shifts in light temperatures. Super amazing and something that is easily overlooked if you're just kind of letting it happen. I know we've said it before, but I'll say it again. We all need more neon light in our life. We do. Just neon light, however much you can, because there's beautiful pink neon light when he's visiting that club in Miami. I swear there's a building he goes into in Miami that looks like it was, I'm pretty sure it was like ported into Grand Theft Auto Vice City, that video game, because I recognize one of those buildings. Yeah, they visited some iconic little places in a certain way throughout this, but alternative iconic places. And this is going to be a Joel Schumacher thing in general, this fetishization of space and old buildings and finding these gorgeous locations. He even says in the commentary that he tries really hard to make a scene very interesting because you might have seen guys talk in a bar before or you've seen people walk through the airport. So he really wants to create something interesting in the background. So if you're going to go to a pornographer's warehouse, why not set it in one of the old Taylor fashion seamstress buildings where all of the sewing machines used to be set up in a line so you can still see these just rows of old furniture and the hanging down plugs and whatnot like it's just really great he he likes to show alternative spaces throughout u.s history i did mention we were really gonna gush on this movie a bit didn't i just want to make sure we have that set up yeah we're just setting up the tone and texture that we both apparently love so much just to let you know 
He delivers the goods to a senator. Nicholas Cage does uh, as a private investigator. He has a name. His character has a name in this movie, Tom Wool or something. I'm just going to call him Nicholas Cage because Nicholas Cage transcends every character that he plays. Delivers everything to her. Uh, we get a quick insert shot of a newspaper that shows the billionaire industrialist has just died. Uh, Cinder says, thank you. You're the best. And Nicholas Cage is like, I'm just happy to help you out and all that. Heads home to Kathleen Kinner, his wife, and he has a little daughter. There's some talk there. Hey, are you smoking? No, I'm not smoking. There's domestic squabble. Who gives a shit? Whatever. Moving on. He gets a phone call that he is surprised to get like, oh, yeah, yes. Uh, okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll get to the house. Uh, yeah, I know where to find it. Then goes to the house of the billionaire industrials who has just died to meet with the billionaire's uh, widow and the smuggest attorney of all time. Yeah, smug attorneys. And she has a query for him. She has found this 8mm film reel in her husband's safe, and she wants him to watch it and see if he can find and locate the girl in the film reel. And so he's going to take that film reel, and he's going to watch it. In a scene that, in my research of this, apparently his Nicolas Cage's acting got a lot of uh, crap in this scene where he first watches the snuff film. And I just thought, how are you supposed to react when you watch a snuff film? Are you supposed to just, like, kind of grit and, like, oh, okay. Yeah, because Nicolas Cage, he's like, oh, God, ah, ugh, wah, oh, oh, you know, a lot of that, which is a perfectly natural reaction to watching what you believe to be a woman being cut to death. Yeah, this actually brings up, I was going to mention here, a really fun demonstration of the Kuleshov effect. The Kuleshov effect is something that is brought to us in film in the 1910s, 1920s by filmmaker Lev Kuleshov. And it is when you show an insert of something and then cut back to somebody's face. And whatever the viewer has seen in that insert prior is going to inform what they then map on to that actor's or character's emotional reaction. How that was classically demonstrated in the classic example is that there was a film reel, and that film reel had a series of three inserts. One was a bowl of soup, and then it cut to a close-up shot of a man's face. And then another insert of a woman in a bikini cut back to that close-up shot of a man's face. And then a, I believe it was a child in a coffin, cuts back to this close-up insert of a man's face. And what happened with this little psychological film experiment is that when it screened to test audiences, the audience response was overwhelmingly that, oh, that man was such a talented actor you could see just the nuance in his micro expressions between hunger and lust and sadness and the actual catch was that the close-up shot of the man's reaction was the exact same film stock each time demonstrating this idea that the audience is going to in some part map onto an actor's given expression or reaction in part, their own expectation of how that person would or should react, or how they themselves, as an audience member, are reacting internally. So the viewer maps on to the reaction, what they actually see or feel with the insert. And so this was a curious use of the Kuleshov effect here with Nick Cage, because he is reacting in a certain Cagean way that is a little bit 
overblown to the fact that it becomes almost alienating. A little bit. He doesn't. Go, he doesn't. He's not fully uncaged until later in the movie. We have a shot of a person in the film slapping a woman, and you hear Nicolas Cage like, "Oh!" Well, it just cuts back to his face. Thing. So it was this. It was an interesting setup of a recreation of like insert facial reaction insert facial reaction i was like oh they're doing the cool show effect except for nick cage is reacting very very strongly here and i think that's part of people's comical reaction to this is because we're used to a subtler cool shove effect because we're already mapping our own responses and then mm. cage is bringing a stronger response than necessary and so it kind of clashes that he, he overreacts in a way that maybe the viewer is not overreacting i feel that a part of that too is that we never get a good look at the snuff film itself it does want to kind of give us like only glimpses of it because i mean as we learned in mazes and monsters the most frightening monsters are the ones that exist in our mind so oh, yes. Yes, we're supposed to fill that in. Yeah, it's often what we don't see that's the scariest part. And that's, a, you know, a technique that's used by many good horror films. And best example is Alien, where we barely ever get a good look at the alien until the very end. But until then, it's terrifying. Which usually works better, except for in a film that's already set up to be an exercise in voyeurism and the idea that the audience is here for this snuff film premise, that there's kind of more of a tease or a withholding mm -hmm. that doesn't fully exist in things like, yeah, Alien, where it's just scarier and more atmospheric. Here you've got the viewers that are like, wait, is that all we get to see? Not necessarily all of the viewers, but curvy viewers that are there for this sleazy premise. <laughs> They're like, you got to push harder. Oh, yeah. We need to see more. Good. Yeah. But it's yeah. just a movie within a movie. So, of <laughs> course, there's limitations in terms of what we can do and see. And what we do see is that a young girl has been taken to some creepy warehouse. She's on a bed. There is a larger dude in a gimp mask with a big butcher knife and five-pointed star tattoo on his hand. And he is just going to cut her up. Yep. That's basically the film. And... Now that Nicolas Cage has seen this, he takes the film back out, is obviously rattled by it, and talks to the widow, and says, um, yeah, that really does look like a real snuff film, and he says, you should go to the police. The widow says, no, 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 I, I can't do that. I don't know what the, for sure this thing is. I need you to find out if she really was murdered. If she's not, I need to know who this girl is. Which is a interesting variation from the original script. In the original script, the widow just assumes she really was murdered and wants to know who is responsible for it before she goes to the police. Ah, interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of different change there. I, I kind of like this movie version a little bit more because it does give you a little bit of ambiguity. Like, was this a snuff film? Is it real? Is it not? Is it just a very good effect? They even have a discussion of, Nicholas Cage points out, when the widow says, I think this is a video, of a film of someone being murdered, he says, you're referring to a snuff film, and that's really an urban myth. There are ways to make things look graphic and horrible, hard to stomach, but it's all fake. And here she says, okay, you say it's possible for it to be, for it to be fake. I need you to show me and prove to me that it was fake. And that is Nicholas Cage's mission. And so whether or not snuff films are complete urban legend, whether they're not, we'll get into more later. It really sort of depends on the definition of snuff film. And mm. for a little while, there was a very limited definition. So now when we think snuff film, 
it colloquially is thrown around as any film stock in which an actual death takes place, right? This seems to be kind of a modern definition. Mm -hmm. Traditionally, and at the time that this movie was out, snuff film was specifically in reference to films that had been commissioned by a third paying party to have a death happen on screen. So it's not just that you happen to catch somebody's death on screen, but it actually had to be paid for and funded and contracted by a third neutral party that wasn't otherwise involved in the actual death. And that's where things get a little bit more complicated because when we say, oh, snuff films are urban legends, the idea of circulating film of people's actual deaths that isn't an urban legend that we have tons of examples of but whether or not a third neutral party paid for it and incited the actual act in the first place because of monetary value that's where it gets a little tricky but that's the definition we're operating for this movie is that her husband as a billionaire might have paid some people to go and procure a girl and kill her on screen for his sexual enjoyment. As you can tell, we're very excited to talk about snuff films and yeah. that's how we roll here. You know, you everyone, you knew what you got into when you started listening to us. Come on. At any rate, Nicholas Cage takes this assignment, says he's going to treat it like a missing persons case. So he heads off to Cleveland, Ohio, which apparently is the head of all missing persons cases for that particular region of the country, goes on a real deep dive of thumbing through all sorts of index cards and paper files. Yeah, and we're going to get some really beautiful insert shots of these investigations of him going through just all of the hard files of missing persons that are all just in these file drawers, and he's flipping through them. And one thing that... I learned is that Joel Schumacher was really into these insert shots and he did not film them. The guy who was in charge of the insert shots was the same dude who was in charge of all the inserts on the original Star Wars. And apparently <laughs> this guy in the film industry is known for his inserts. Like he's made just an entire career out of making inserts into an art form. And wow. he just sees inserts as a certain type of tableau art and so he would go in and he would just meticulously set up these insert shots and while they were filming Joel Schumacher would make fun of him like you're really taking your time here but then later when he was editing the film together it was like wow we have these really beautiful insert shots we definitely need to use them so that's going to carry over throughout the film as well or to pay attention to the insert shots because yeah they they are kind of compositionally stunning Fascinating. Well, eventually, Nicolas Cage does find a index card that has the picture of the young girl in the film. Yeah, so she's going to turn out to be from North Carolina, played by a local stripper named Ryan. That's oh. what I was able to get on her, that she was brought in as a stand-in to test the light on set. And then they really liked her face on camera and... Schumacher mentioned that she had a lot of grueling work to do, getting thrown around by all these men repeatedly oh. to get the shots and stuff, but she she was having fun with it. So, <laughs> All right, well, there you go. We head down to the beautifully, subtly green-filtered scenes of North Carolina. Uh, one thing I love about his visit to the mother is that he establishes very early on, like, I am not here to raise your hopes, but he talks to her, gets a little bit more information from her, I believe wants to search the house, finds a diary in a toilet tank, 
as one does. I found it fascinating that he, in snooping around, is like, up oh, toilet tank. Gotta search that. That's a typical hiding place every single time. Yeah, I just found it curious that this this toilet was where it was. Like, it's in this very creepy basement. So first of all, they have a really creepy basement. And... <laughs> There is a side bath toilet room off of this creepy basement that doesn't look like anybody ever goes down there. It just is one of those cellars that just has stuff and junk all over the place. And yet this toilet is still hooked up. It has water in it. Keep in mind here, people, if a basement is creeping us out, oh boy, yeah. that's a creepy damn basement. That is a really, yeah, it was just kind of gross. And I, I'm like, why is this toilet hooked up? Who is using this bathroom? But <laughs> yeah, apparently this is someplace that Marianne Matthews, the daughter, had gone down to frequently and put her diary in the Ziploc bag behind the tank. Yeah, we learned that Marianne headed out to Los Angeles wanting to become a movie star. And so Nicolas Cage also heads out to Los Angeles to follow in her footsteps. Hard cut to L.A. And we know we are in L.A. the second that that golden light hits the screen. We're going to have some really warm temperatures. We're going to have that bright golden glow of our West Coast temperature lighting. And this is where the amazing music that's been happening so far throughout this film really comes to an apex. How would you describe this music? I kept wanting to call it like Moroccan Casbah music. It's exactly Moroccan Casbah music. Okay, In fact, yeah. the music producer on this film did his graduate work in, I think it was Morocco, but most of the music for this film was recorded in Morocco. It's got this really just beautiful sonic quality that's going to be in the background throughout. And yeah, it's going to come to a little head here. And we're going to see some of the streets of L.A. It's all played over a beautiful montage of him like going through L.A., showing Marianne's picture around, asking questions. I think he visits a strip bar at one point, which... Out of the past four movies that we've done, three of them involve strip clubs in some way or another. Yeah, it's a theme. Doesn't mean anything about us personally at all. Oh, we do get an Angeline billboard in the background of this montage. So this is really important for Joel Schumacher to get in there because he thought it was a great overall theme symbol of Los Angeles, especially at the time. Angeline billboards are kind of a strange mystery that there was a woman named Angeline who in the 80s began to pop up on all of these L.A. billboards. Nobody had ever seen her or heard of her in anything, but there were just these big pink billboards that would have her on them with Angeline <laughs> written on them. And it became this almost symbol for just the facade of Hollywood that you could be famous for nothing because she was just on billboards. Later, it turned out that she was the girlfriend of some business guy who had a lot of billboard space and decided <laughs> to put her up on these billboards. And she also wanted to be a musician and an actress and whatnot, but she sort of worked her way into Hollywood fame by just starting to put her face up on billboards. There's actually, I went to go look her up again, and there is a, I think it's actually maybe even through Netflix, but 
there is going to be a documentary series about Angeline coming out sometime this year or next. So randomly timing. And it's going to make Tiger King look tame. Yeah, there's actually a play, too, that was written by a playwright about growing up in the shadow of the Angeline billboards in Los Angeles. So she has a, a presence, an odd lasting presence. But yeah, there is an Angeline billboard in there. So another time capsule moment. And then we get the shot of Stands of Hollywood, the porn shop. This is an actual porn shop, or it was mm. a very prominent porn shop in L.A. in the 90s. And we head inside, and we meet the other, well, another fantastic performer for this movie, Mr. Joaquin Phoenix, playing the best-named character of all time, Max California. Yeah, okay, so how were you saying his name? Joaquin Phoenix. Is that official? Because everybody else calls him Joaquin. Oh, right. I'm a... <laughs> okay, yeah, I fucked that up. Joaquin Phoenix. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> I think you actually said his name for some reason in an earlier cast, because I had somebody call me up and was like, how does Ben say Joaquin Phoenix? And I was like, I don't know, that passed me by. But yeah, you've been being made fun of for the way you said Joaquin for weeks now. If that's the only thing that people have on me, I'm doing pretty good. Oh, no, they have so much more on you, but the rest we've already come to expect. Yes, Joaquin Phoenix is standing here behind the counter. And can I offer you a battery-operated vagina? No, uh, not interested. You know, I hate to have you find yourself in one of those everyday situations where you need a battery-operated vagina and you just don't have one. He's like, I'll risk it. Yeah. The interesting thing about this role is that apparently it was first offered to Mark Wahlberg. To have from Boogie Nights to 8mm, it would have been a theming yeah, crossover. I, could, I really can't see uh, Mark Wahlberg in this role. This might be a situation where he could have done it, but uh, Phoenix is just so good in this movie. Uh, it's hard to imagine anyone else playing the role. He really is. So Joaquin Phoenix has done some things in his life that kind of make you want to just roll your eyes and be like, oh, what a theatrical, pretentious douchebag. And yet, when he shows up in cinema, especially around this time period, so 8mm and also To Die For, he's just so good that it I just can't hate him. Like, I'm just like, you're just so good. <laughs> yes, by all means, proceed. I mean, the things that he does in life, they're eye-rolling, but it's, at the end of the day, it's just harmless theatrics that he's doing. It's nothing really that I would call problematic, unless there's something I'm missing, but he just pretended to be a rapper for two years, and that was it. I'm like, eh, okay. Well, it's more just that he seems to take himself so seriously that it's kind of like he takes himself too seriously, but he... Then he has these performances where you're like, okay, whatever, take yourself as seriously as you want. Whatever gets us to this, fine, just do it. It's all good. Because, yeah, this is a really great performance, and it's a really fun interaction. This is also the scene where they had to cut a lot of stuff from the original X ratings. So in the background in this porn shop initially, there were apparently four different screens that were all showing four very different types of pornography. Uh... And this is something that Schumacher thought would be nice to visually represent mm -hmm. and apparently the one that the ratings board had the most trouble with was some lesbian pornography that was going on at one of the screens because not the lesbians yes as we've learned from this film is not yet rated two of the <laughs> things that are actually three of the things that ratings boards generally can't stand are sex female pleasure 
and homosexuality. And so we had a trifecta here that Joel Schumacher is like, I tried, ladies, I tried. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he uh, yeah he had to cut it. He had to cut all of them, but that was the one that kind of specifically came up in the commentary. Uh, well, there you go. But at any rate, that's our introduction to Max uh, California. Nicolas Cage watches the film again. One thing I did like about this is that his... His progression of discomfort when watching the film, uh, by, by which I mean to say his discomfort goes down when he watches the snuff film over and over again throughout the movie. Because the first time he has that very intense reaction to it. Second time he was watching it, he's just like, oh, God, why is this movie? Third time, just like, OK, so then he goes over there. He picks up the knife and moves over there. Hey, a third guy. And notices a third guy gets the film scanned in a scene that could be deleted, but. There's just this wonderful line delivery from a, a technician who says, okay, so we got 137 billable man hours here, about $100,000 worth of equipment, all to show you a very rasterized image of the back of some guy's head. Congratulations. Yeah, which still gives us information in a way, because it's a certain hair length, it's a certain hair color. Something to work with, to be yeah, sure. Yeah, and it makes sense that he would become increasingly desensitized to this material, especially when he's in detective mode. Yeah. So that all tracks. He goes back to see Max California because he knows he needs some insider information on pornography. And we get one of, I, I'm assuming this is an improv line or just was added at a later date because it's not in the original script, where when he's walking into the porn shop, <laughs> Max California says, hey, 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 come on. It's like a gas station. Pay before you pump. Yeah, that's like, seem like oh, a okay. improv. I do also want to point out that in the scene before, Nick Cage is watching this eight millimeter film sur on the bed of the motel surrounded by just stacks and scatters of all sorts of porn and yeah advertisements and he's wearing a t-shirt and tidy whities like that's all he's in <laughs> he's cross-legged on the bed and i'm like yeah this is the way to to do some work that's where i'm watching i'm like too real man too real and then when we cut back to max california he also is going to be in a fun outfit where he has this belly shirt where it's not really a crop top oh yeah the belly shirt yes it's like a little bit up so we can kind of see the the lower portion of his stomach and it's also going to be this flesh tone shirt He's got the blue hair. He's got the eyebrow piercing, which apparently both of these things were Joaquin's decision mm -hmm. that he just showed up on set with his eyebrow pierced and his hair blue because he decided this was a great look for the character, which it was. So Schumacher was pleased with it. And there's almost this kind of sexually charged interaction briefly with them where it does kind of almost seem like they're hitting on each other. And you're <laughs> like, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of into this. And so Joaquin does feel the need to verbalize as they're negotiating the fact that Joaquin's going to start working for Nick Cage, that he's straight. But I actually did like the way that this information was delivered. And I think it was probably because of Schumacher's sensitivity, since he is a gay man, that he kind of knows better ways, right, to have straight men deliver like the mm -hmm. I'm, like no homo bro because he didn't go no homo he went like oh they're like i'm straight and then nick cage is like congratulations and he's like thank you <laughs> so it was just this like hey man i'm straight congratulations thank you and that that was it that's all we needed 
as they continued on. Um, So just kind of setting up like, no, this is not a sexually charged relationship in a traditional fashion necessarily. This is all about the hunt. He needs him because he's a smart guy that reads Truman Capote at his desk. The one thing I thought was silly was that he felt he had to put a fake cover over the book to hide the fact that he was reading Truman Capote. I don't think anyone cares, bro. Yeah. Well, maybe it was just that he wasn't supposed to be doing his own non-work-related stuff at work. So he's like, oh, I'm just perusing the merchandise. I'm just checking it out. But no, he's actually reading In Cold Blood. Or perhaps this is, once again, a setup of his own darker urges because he's sitting in a porn store and what gets him going isn't actually the regular sellable porn, but the in-cold-blood murder snuff fic, which <laughs> essentially in-cold-blood is, right? It's yeah. a expositional look at some of America's darker urges. So it almost set up just, yeah, this kind of kindred spirit of the darker underground world, even though Capote's work, of course, is sellable, but... Not everybody gets as excited and invested in it as Max California seems to. An odd difference between script and movie is that in the script, he is reading Capote, but he's reading music for chameleons. Well, that's fair, except for I would assume since he doesn't say I'm reading Truman Capote's In Cold Blood, he just says In Cold Blood. If you have this guy who's like, I'm reading music and chameleons, a very small percentage (laughs) of people are going to know what the fuck that is comparatively. So we also are going to get the fact that he's really into Truman Capote later out in the alley where he uses the word patina. And he's like, yeah, "Yeah, it certainly has a kind of patina to it. And he's like, it's a Truman Capote word. I'm like, it's also just a word, buddy. Truman Truman Capote Capote did did not not invent invent patina. He he didn't invent that word. No, Uh, this alleyway is also where the movie gives us, uh, I think it's thesis statement or uh, (laughs) why can I not say his name? Joaquin Phoenix. He says, what are you, you're going to get too deep into this, man. Look, you dance the devil. The devil don't change. The devil changes you. Yeah. Which is not in the original script. Apparently that was something that uh, Andrew Walker, he saw in the trailer. He's like, I didn't write that. I hate this movie. I don't know why he hates that line in particular. It really, it sums up a lot. They go into a store uh, or a house to uh, check things out. Uh, to get some check, get some leads and some porn. So this is one of my favorite things in the movie. Okay, so all right, take let us me there. set the scene here. Transport us. Nick Cage is going to ask Joaquin Phoenix, Max California, to take him into the underground world of hardcore illicit pornography because Max California, being a porn store clerk, apparently just naturally has the ins to all of these underground <laughs> porn swap meets, but. That aside, we're going to go to a couple of different types of illicit places to get illegal porn. The first one is going to be a traveling brothel. This was something that still does exist, but was a big thing that was making headlines in LA in the 80s and 90s. They were houses that mostly women would be trafficked through the border into LA and then they would have these houses that were set up that would kind of rotate through suburban neighborhoods, mostly in the valley, usually every three to four days. And so we visit one of those first and the women are all sort of sitting around in the upper floor and then in the basement, they are selling some things. And 
Joaquin Phoenix is going to go up to one of the guys that's selling stuff. And these are basements that have everything under the sun, including like child pornography, right? And so he's going to go up to this child pornographer and ask him in this surreptitious way, like, do you have any... uh, Penahila's de snuff and the guy's like de snuff like his reaction (laughs) is just like who the fuck do you think I am like I'm just a child pornographer I don't deal with any of this snuff stuff like how dare you good sir you have brought disgrace upon this how to find repute where's your morality um and so that's like one of my favorite moments in this like whole thing it's just this like weird flexible delineating scale of pornographic morality yeah they get they get chucked out of there because human trafficking and child porn is one thing but this the snuff stuff you know they, he didn't even necessarily say like real snuff right he's just like snuff and no like this is this is a line have you no decency sir well they get they get chucked out of that place and head off to another under, like a literal underground porn shop. Yeah, well, where... this one's an underground swap meet. So we're going to get mm-hmm. the traveling brothel, we're going to get the underground swap meet, and then we're going to get an underground sex club. So this is the swap meet, which okay. is also generally travels week to week. This one's mm-hmm. usually a week to week thing. For Down some reason, I know a lot about <laughs> these underground things in the 90s. Never know we're just going to let be. that happen. Just gotta stay on top of things. <laughs> And this also, yeah, is going to kind of have the different type of stuff. Nick Cage is going to go up to one guy who has a little cardboard sign that says, like, hardcore, beyond extreme, and, like, it's 12 a, X's. I think, yeah, it just says way beyond, and then a bunch of X's on it. And he's like, what's this? Like, oh, that's, you know, simulated rape, hardcore S&M, you know, just the hard stuff. Well, I want something even more intense. It doesn't get more intense than that stuff. What about snuff? Ah, it doesn't exist. Yeah, so this jaded guy is like, yeah, either, I think it's like, buy five, buy five, get one free oh, sort yeah. of deal, too, <laughs> on this deal. beyond extreme stuff. At one point in this scene, Nicolas Cage walks into a curtained room, and they're watching a, a porn that is like a nurse giving an enema to a guy. And in my research for this, I kept seeing trivia notes that said, this was a real pornography that had to be cut down. But I couldn't find what the thing was. No one seemed to know. I think everyone was just taken like off of one rumor on that because I couldn't find any information on that being a real porn. That may have just been something that was made for the sake of the movie. I don't know. Okay, so I don't know if it was a real porn initially. What I did get from Schumacher in the commentary is Ah, that this was a popular... BDSM porn actress at the time, and that they did film a longer scene that had to be cut uh, down. Brought her in for some authenticity, okay. Yeah, and she apparently was one of their consultants, helped a lot in terms of knowing what type of stuff would be considered illegal and illicit and what wouldn't. And so, once again, we're going to get into that more later, but... Yeah, we will. The interesting thing, the confusing thing is going to be what we see here. It's just a nurse fetish enema video. And that in and of itself wouldn't be an illicit piece of pornography because it was able to make it into this film. And so (laughs) that's going to be the problem is we're looking at these snippets and we're like, why is this illegal? And it's like, well, the parts we're seeing aren't. And yeah, so it gets kind of quaint and confusing in that way where you're like, this isn't hardcore. This is just a nurse enema fetish video. Like whatever, moving on. We have a fantastic walk through an S&M dungeon where they're going to buy what they are told is legit snuff. 
uh, a man with a delightful German accent is like, yeah, I sell you this for $1,200, yeah? You said 1000 I know, I upped the price, it's amazing, yeah? Well, he's also, he likes to up the price because he likes to watch them get mad. Oh, uh, yeah, it's so great. <laughs> yeah, he's pinching his nipples as he's talking about this, so he's kind of getting off on oh, the fact God. that he's making this dude angry oh, he's, and getting yelled a, at. He has a fantastic, like, leather outfit, leather bondage outfit on. It's Everything about this suit is, is wonderful. Yeah, and this is mimicked after some of the underground BDSM clubs that aren't necessarily even just restricted to the 80s and 90s. We still have these. They're not necessarily underground or illicit as much anymore, but there's a certain aura one likes to cultivate at a BDSM club. There are various ones. I've been to everything from like really, really clean upscale mansions to places that look exactly like this, that are just in the basement of warehouses with chain link fences. It's a cultivated aesthetic. In the middle of that is just a converted hotel ballroom, which is the limit of my exposure. And I, there I just thought, oh, well, I really have to clean this up later on. Okay. Yeah, I need to bring extract to more dungeons, but... <laughs> That's what I liked to call Benji is extract because he's vanilla, but he hangs out with all of us. Uh, oh, God damn it all. Okay. All right. As we continue on, we find them watching this porn, them being Max <laughs> yeah. California and Nick Cage, who I think's name in this is Tom Wells, but it's it's not. It's Nick Cage. Like I said, Nick Cage is above all of his characters. He is just Nick Cage. Yeah. And what I really like about the production detail here is that there's this dirty stain on the television yeah, that they're watching. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> and so, yeah, like, they're just watching this dirty motel room. That is how I'm going to watch my stuff from now on. Just something, smear some dirt on the screen. Like, oh, yeah, that's good. Yeah, it's just another great production detail. Also, the motel walls are, like, painted in this dark purple black paint. So... Every single wall in this film is going to be painted a very deep, rich color. Yeah. There are no white walls in this movie. And I, th I mean, as someone who's filmed a few things, white walls are the enemy of film. Never film a white wall. It looks horrible. Well, apparently that's second to red walls because cinematographers will rarely shoot in front of a red wall. We're going to shoot that in this film, but we'll, okay. yeah. we'll get into it. <laughs> so they have paid $1,200 for these two alleged snuff films, which they determine are from the Philippines. The first one, they're like, oh, no, did we just watch a snuff film? Another one? But then they put in the second one and they have a revelation. It's the same girl in both films. So then they, they let out a sigh of relief. They're like, oh my God, Snuff 2, The Resurrection. Yes, which is such a great <laughs> title. My favorite Snuff joke. Snuff 2, The Resurrection. I just thought, man, that is, that's just really poor distribution methods on the part of that German guy to give them snuff films that have the same actress in them. At least give them something with different actors. But what are you going to do? You know, that's what you get for $1,200. Well, for the most part, people that are in the snuff film market don't necessarily care as much about whether or not the person actually dies. It's the simulation, right? <laughs> so in the way that sex in porn, it is and it isn't authentic. If somebody fakes getting off in a porn video versus gets off in a porn video, it doesn't make a difference to the porn viewer if it looks like they're getting off and that's what they're into. Same thing with death. Right. And if it looks like they're mm -hmm. they're dying and if it gets you off, isn't that good enough? Isn't that the exchange here that's happening? But 
I did with find it. it interesting that they were trying to deduce where it was from and deduce that it was from the Philippines. I was like, well, what is the, the hardcore market coming out of the Philippines? And it turns out that they are the eighth global distributor of hardcore porn. The real quick list of the top eight underground markets. Number one, China. Number two, South Korea. Number three, Japan. Number four, the U.S. Mm. Number five, Australia. Number six, the U.K. Number seven, Italy. And then number eight is the Philippines, which is tied with Russia, Brazil, and Canada. And Canada. How great would it be if they were like, these snuff films, these Canadian oh snuff films. Oh my God. What is this coming out of? Canadian snuff film market. Is this, is this Canadian? Oh my God, it's Canadian. Yeah, it's the good stuff. God, yeah. So in this scene is where we get a conversation that I think you mentioned earlier, this movie's somewhat puritanical attitude towards pornography because Nicolas Cage, uh, he asked Joaquin, why are you doing this? You're a smart kid. You could be doing something else with your life. And Joaquin's like, oh, man, like, I don't endorse it. I sell it. I point the way. But, you know, it's, it's their thing. And this movie is basically telling us that Joaquin should not be there. That Max should not. He could be doing better. And better is not the world of pornography. Yeah, but it's like, bitch. <laughs> I think he's having a good time. Let him be, bro. It's cool. Yeah. And also, Joaquin's going to be judgmental right back. You get turned on watching this, and Nick Cage is like, no. And he's like, well, you don't get turned off either. Ah, and so yeah, there we go. Nick Cage, yeah, is, he has his own sort of thing that gets him going, which is the hunt. Mm -hmm. He wants to solve this case. What can you say? Yeah. We're going to get this whole kind of like fast forward stuff here where he finds Mary's suitcase at some point, which gives him a lead to look into this one particular porn production place, which Gandolfini, whatever the mm -hmm. fuck his name is. James Gandolfini. <laughs> okay, so I can't, apparently I can't say Joaquin Phoenix's name correct. You, however, stumble over James Gandolfini. All right, not fair well, enough. I just couldn't remember if that was actually his name, but yeah, James Gandolfini mm -hmm. is going to a porn scout agent film guy. Nicolas Cage shows him Marianne's picture and James looks at this long and hard. We have like beads of sweat coming off his face. But uh, he says, no, no, no I've, I've never seen her before in my life. It's just it's good. It's good acting from from Gandolfini on that one. So, you know, good job there. Nicolas Cage is suspicious, as he should be. He sets up shop across the way, gets surveillance going on him, taps his phone. So not only is Nick Cage going to set up some surveillance, he's going to do it in the most interesting physical space that in this case is a former sewing factory. So we can still see the bones of what this space used to be with these long tables and all of the outlets that are coming down from the ceiling that the sewing machines would be plugged into. It just gives a really great depth to this scene that would or could have otherwise just been an empty warehouse. But instead, we're getting to see just little pieces of the history of LA's labor force. Yesterday, it was seamstresses. Today, it's pornographers. I don't know. But still gorgeous. Mm -hmm. So we're getting all just layers of voyeurism. Oh, yeah. Who is the voyeur is the question, especially since we're going to get a couple of other scenes throughout that suddenly go into a mysterious car POV where it seems like somebody is watching 
Nick Cage and Max California at yeah. intervals throughout this. So there's this kind of weird, cool interplay of point of view and voyeurism in this throughout. Now, yep. at some point, Nick Cage is going to trick James Gandolfini into becoming scared or spooked that somebody knows something about this film that he may have taken part in, the snuff film that he may have taken part in at some point. So he's going to call up a mysterious dude, and this number is going to lead them to a porn production company in New York, oh, owned yes. and operated uh, by oh. Dino Velvet. Dino Velvet, Max California, describes him as the, uh, the Jim Jarmusch of S&M. Yes. Interestingly, in the original script, he is described as the Jean-Luc Godard of, <laughs> of S&M. Oh, Dino Velvet, I was trying to think of what would be a really good Nagla's comparison for Dino Velvet because there are definitely independent filmmakers, especially in the 90s around this time. But Dino Velvet's going to do things like have these more traditional looking BDSM scenes interspliced with hissing cats and dumpsters on fire and then images of crosses and then going back to sex and it's just this collage montage of jarring images i could just imagine watching that and you know being in a, in a good say you're like oh yeah that's good. what the fuck is okay well it's gone okay oh yeah and then the cat just hisses at you and yeah, like what the hell what I oh my god yes these are like his trailers like welcome to the world of dino velvet you're like yeah dino max says uh he does the craziest stuff man he can do things on commission for really expensive like if a guy wants to see a transvestite in a rubber emergency suit take an enema from yo yeah, okay okay yeah i get it i get it all right all right you know well how he also stipulates that Nothing illegal, but borderline. And you're like, what is borderline illegal about what you just said? So they go to New York. Uh, they head up to, they head up to like, as you mentioned earlier, like an old textile factory style building. Hit the buzzer. Yeah, we're here to see Dino. He's not here. Tell him we're here to give him a very large sum of money. Okay, come on up. They head on in. Oh my God. Uh, Dino is played by Peter Stormare. This character, I think, is also the ghost of my Christmas future. You'd be so lucky. Peter uh, is playing this character, uh, Dino Velvet, as this the slimiest, greasiest, scummiest son of a bitch, and I love him. And he always is wearing some piece of velvet. Yes, Dino Velvet wears velvet. Man knows how to theme. Uh, his office is, I think, the best example of what I say I love about this movie, just the texture of it. It is just everything is greasy and shiny and shimmery about this office. He has got it decked out to the nines and crazy-ass decorations. It is, it's just so good, dark, grimy, beautiful. Nicholas Cage says, uh, I won't, I'm going to give you a, a lot of money to make a film. You know, I need I need some women in there, but I need to be present for it. And in one of my favorite lines, uh, Dino Velvet says, Oh, you trying to franchise? Going to watch and steal the recipe to my secret sauce? Is just glorious. Lines that are not in the original script, so they're either added later on, or Peter Stormare just says, you know what? It's like he had a moment like Rucker Howard had. He's like, let me add some lines here. And in Blade Runner, Rucker Howard famously added that whole thing of like, you know, wake up, time to die, that speech. And I have to wonder, like, did Peter Stormare just like, was he bringing it? Was he bringing his own personal Rutger Howard to the game here and just adding these amazing lines? 
So what I gathered from the commentary is that this Dino Velvet character is almost entirely Peter's. Mm. That he came up with the accent, the dress, the mannerisms. So yeah, they just kind of let Peter do Peter on this one. That makes a lot of sense. None of the things that are amazing about this guy on screen are in the original script. The straightforward plot point dialogue is all the same. But these awesome lines, like about the secret sauce, none of that's in there. So, yeah. Also, Dino's office. Okay, so Dino's God, office. Take us, take us to Dino's office, man. Another just beautiful, dark, rich walls. These are painted a very deep midnight black. And then the production designer put saran wrap over all of these walls to give it that shiny, light-reflective quality. Mm. So he there apparently yes. went through a ton of saran wrap on this film <laughs> because this is not the only room he does this in. You can actually see it when they get to his warehouse later also. It's just okay. totally wrapped in saran wrap. What they were going for is there's an artist, Joseph Cornell, I think he's like 1903 to 1972 or the years that he was working. And he created these mixed material boxes. So the Cornell box is a thing from art history. And the production designer, what he wanted to try to do was just create what it would be like to be inside of a Cornell box. <laughs> just this whole mixed <laughs> media found material in surrealist insanity. So we've got just scraps of metal and we've got skulls and we have candles and we have beads. Like we just have <laughs> all the possible materials that just could texture this office. It's so good. But yeah, the saran wrap is a really cool extra light reflective trick. So watch the walls in this film to see which ones reflect. And then at this point, Nick Cage is going to decide we're getting into dangerous territory here. Maybe we should send Joaquin Phoenix home. Yeah. And they go to a bar. Yeah, there's a bar. There's a, almost an airplane style joke there where he gives him an envelope and Joaquin says, what is it? He says, it's money. People use it to purchase goods and services. This is another curious scene of texture because it's just a scene in a bar. It would be completely forgettable and thrown away, except for the fact that we have some dimensional stuff happening. So while they're just sitting here talking in a bar, there is some sort of fiery car accident that has happened outside the bar behind yeah. them. So. Mm. A car is on fire, and there are police lights that are just circling those red and blue lights around this interior space. <laughs> this apparently was something that didn't just happen. Schumacher was like, no, bars are scenes that people have seen before, so we want something more going on here visually in the scene. And it's New York, so we're like, there's always multiple dramas and tragedies happening at once, right? These are just two guys that are caught up in the midst of their own shit. Meanwhile, there's somebody dying five feet away from them, so yeah. let's just have that happen. And it's just beautiful. The lighting in this scene as well is going to be that gray-blue light, so we feel like we're in New York, even though this is apparently shot in Los Angeles. But mm -hmm. we would, we already just know we're in New York because once again we've set up that temperature palette from the beginning and remain consistent. There's a also a scene that's important later on where Nicolas Cage talks to the billionaire widower or widow from earlier, and she says, uh, "Yeah, it's a little strange. My husband had these like separate accounts that he apparently kept to himself, and he wrote out different amounts, but all five amounts equal one million dollars. So we're kind of meant to assume." This is the amount her husband paid for whatever that film was. 
So, just, you know, putting that out there. One million dollars is the cost of human life on eight millimeter. We'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there. Uh, but yes, he does tell Max to leave. Meets up at the docks uh, to, to meet up with Dino Velvet. And he has also requested that the machine who is the performer that we saw in the snuff film that Nicolas Cage found in another one of Dino Velvet's videos, hence why he commissioned this film, because he wants to meet Machine. They get there. Um, you want to take us through this scene at all? Anything interesting happening in this scene that we should be aware of? So this of? is the red room. This is a deep, deep red room. Deep red warehouse, actually. And apparently the cinematographer was like, yeah, let's fucking do it. They're also going to wrap saran wrap on all of these walls. But he walks into this warehouse and it just has a crucifix cross or whatever in the middle of the room. It's got an old rickety bed. And then Peter is or Dino Velvet is just shooting crossbow arrows at this cross. At a giant fucking crucifix, like life-sized. You can put someone on this thing. This is the imagery that we have going on here, and he's a great shot with this crossbow. And Nick Cage is going to walk in, and he's going to ask, where are the girls? Because it's just these three men. And I'm wondering, you should maybe also ask, like, where's the film crew? Where are the lights? (laughs) You need some (laughs) other things to make this production other than just the missing women. Oh, God, yes. Uh, Yeah, when there's a lack of craft services in the corner, then you know something's up. Yes, but instead, James Gandolfini shows up and as uh, Dino Velvet says, and now the Satan ex machina. Like, oh yes, I love I love <laughs> shit like that. The lawyer from the beginning of the movie, the smug lawyer shows up, and it's all been a ruse, sort of. But they are there because they know that he's been snooping around Nicolas Cage, that damn guy. There's a fantastic moment where they have him kind of tied up, they're punching him around. They go through his wallet, and Dino Velvet sees like, oh, there's a picture of his wife and kid in there. He's like, Yes. I could make quite a film with their faces. And he just starts eating the picture. What I could do with faces like this on film. On second thought, why would I need their faces? Yes. That is the quote. And then, yeah, he just puts this picture in his mouth, chews and swallows. Also, apparently a Peter improv moment, according to Schumacher. I believe it, man. Yeah, Peter, bringing the storm air to this man. It's so good. The lawyer accountant guy walks in and reveals that he has been a part of this the whole time that he had been the dead billionaire's lawyer accountant and had done the payouts and arranged all of this Mm. and the person i was watching this with was like i mean i could have told you that because it was a really well-known actor in this seemingly very bit role (laughs) as this lawyer in this one scene and you're like that's fair so they say like okay go to your car you need to get the film and bring it back here or we're gonna kill max california who they then bring out machinists beat the shit out of him yeah they do mention that they're with Joaquin Phoenix, that they will kill him, fuck him, and film it. I'm like, in that order? They put the Phoenix on the cross, and they're like, go get the thing. And this scene is where, one, we get some stupid plot points. Because the lawyer says, yeah, I hired you because I figured you were inexperienced and young. I didn't think you'd ever get this far. But when Nicolas Cage is hired, they just have nothing but good things to say about him. So I always thought that was kind of a strange plot point. It's one thing I would have trimmed a little bit, you know, 
Just have him say, you weren't meant to ever get this far. You weren't meant to find out, but what can we do? Yeah, we thought of ourselves as untouchable. But on the way out to the car, we get the Nicolas Cage we know and love, where he's like, what happened? Huh? Did you get up on it? Were you in there? You give him a hand job while you're watching the thing? Is that what's going on? And you're like, yeah, don't, don't yeah. judge him. <laughs> and maybe, maybe that's what they were doing. Like He asked the lawyer, like, why did he want a snuff film? What good would that do him? Why did he want to get a snuff film? The lawyer just says, because he could. Yeah. That's it. Because he could. God damn, that's a sick take on humanity, but you know what? This movie's not pulling any punches. Not pulling any leather-gloved punches. Not at all. It's a fairly common reason why people do things, because yeah. they can. <laughs> because we just can. But anyway, they get the film, go back inside, uh, Nicholas Cage says, okay, well, let, let Max go first. And I, when I was watching this, I just thought, Nick, you're, you have a gun to your head, and you're surrounded by a bunch of guys. You're in no state to negotiate here, but whatever, so... Dino says, all right, Machine, set the kid free. And Machine just slices the kid's throat, which I believe had to be trimmed or cut back a little bit for the sake yep, of an R rating. that one also had to be trimmed. Makes sense. They cuff Cage the bed, burn the films. So they're like, ah, oh, look, there it goes. And now it's like nothing ever happened. And Nick then begins to try and throw a wrench in everything. He's like... How are you guys all so low time still after a million dollars? And the pornographers are looking over at the lawyer like, the fuck is he talking about? Turns out the lawyer kept a lot of the money for himself and only paid the other guys $30,000. So kind of a dick move. And this leads to, I think, possibly my favorite line of the entire film. When Dino says, now look, if there's no honor among perverts and pornographers, the whole business would fall apart. <laughs> I've never done too. Yeah. <laughs> so great. He's got principles, okay? He really does. There's a kind of a, a standoff. Uh, the lawyer shoots Dino Velvet, and another fantastic line is when Dino, after he has action, shot the lawyer with the crossbow, then gets shot in the throat, he begins to huddle over, and he's like, no, not like this. It was not supposed to be like this. I was meant to have something more cinematic than this. Like, yep. Leave it to a film director to critique his own death. <laughs> so, yeah, he dies, but James Gandolfini gets away, as does Machine. Nick Cage is going to go in pursuit of these men. He's going to track down James Gandolfini first, get him tied up in the location that Mary initially was killed in the snuff film. And he wants to kill him. He really wants to. He's got his gun out, and James Gandolfini is just mocking oh, him. Man, like, come I, on, Gandolfini bitch, do it. is great in this. Just like, come on, come on, you don't have the fucking guts to do it. Come on, kill me, put me out of my fucking misery. Just do it. Come on, you fucking pussy. And like, on and on and on. Calls him far worse names than I want to call anyone, but yeah. Yeah, and so Nick Cage has to take a moment. He has to pause and go out and call Mary's mother. Ooh, and boy. just say, hey, yeah, you know how you told me <laughs> you would want to know if anything happened to your daughter, even if it was bad? Well, yeah, it turns out that she was kidnapped, raped, and murdered on film. And I have the, one of the guys who did it right now tied up in a warehouse, and I need permission to kill him. And this is a lot of information for this mother to take yeah. in all at once. She's like, 
the fuck? Like, like there was maybe a better way to break this. To yeah, this she's like woman. literally asking, like, why are you telling me all of this? And he's, he's like, like, I just need to know if you loved her. And she's like, yeah, I did. And he's like, that's all I needed. Yeah, yeah, I loved my daughter. Okay, great. He goes back in and instead of shooting Gandolfini's character, uh, just begins pistol whipping him to death. Uh, I have also heard this scene was cut back a bit for the sake of an R rating. And I've, I, which is fine for me because we just see him go in, bring up the gun, and, you know, he's about to take his first strike to beat the man to death. And then he just, we cut to him emerging from the house later on. His hands are bloody. This gun is, full, like, blood covered, and his, his hands are just shaking. I'm like, yeah, again, sometimes it's, it's what you don't see that's the best part of it. Yeah, because the sound keeps following, so we see mm. his aftermath, but we hear it all happening. It's yeah. a really cool overlay of stuff. And so he's beating this man to death, and I am so captivated by, once again, the space in which he's doing it. This dilapidated, abandoned structure has, over time, just accumulated so much graffiti. And so we've got these concrete gray walls that just have layers upon layers of brightly colored street art and just words and names and they're layered and once again just that rich tapestry of texture joel schumacher making those decisions to just shoot in a very cool captivating space oh yeah and then he goes after machine machine had gotten stabbed in the stomach and so this is a lead that he can follow up on by calling all of the new york hospitals pretending to be a police officer and seeing if any man had been admitted in the last two days with an abdominal wound. This, I forgot to look up the extent of HIPAA violations if this woman <laughs> could fully give out to what she believed to be an officer, his full name and address, but yeah. she does. So he heads over to this guy's house, which is technically his mother's house. So Machine still lives with his mother. And... We get this voyeuristic sequence again where Nick Cage is once again the predatory voyeur. He's lingering outside. He has his little binoculars. He's watching the guy who's still semi out of frame interact with his mother, who then gets on a bus to go to church. And this is a really cool, subtle detail that Schumacher didn't comment on. So I don't actually know if this is on purpose or not, but I feel like it's gotta be that... Up until now, we have become well aware of the fact that the billionaire man that shot this film, as well as the little lady who's paying or supporting Nick Cage's endeavors, their last name is Christian. And mm -hmm. so yeah. they are, it's the Christian mansion and Mrs. Christian. And then this little lady is going to get on a bus that clearly has faithful christian fellowship <laughs> written across the side of it because mm -hmm. it is the church bus and it was just really interesting to me like i'd never noticed that before until i was watching it this time that she's like boarding this and there's some kind of duality there right that these are like the faithful fellowship of like the christian mm -hmm. billionaire family that have been following him around doing his bidding for his money so there's kind of a cool weird overlay there with what was happening but She's going to go off in the Faithful Christian Fellowship bus, and Nick Cage is going to enter the abode and owe this scene. 
So as he's walking in, there's a little bit of music playing, and then the record hits the end of it. Like, it gets the end of the record, you know, because Machine, he is both a murder file and an audio file, because he listens to vinyl like a good man does. Uh, the skipping of the record continues, and it's like a really clicking heartbeat kind of sound as he's checking this place out. And scratching and grating. Like, there's oh, almost yeah. this infrared noise. It is very hard to listen to. When he goes into to the machine's room, there's a lot of Danzig posters on the wall, which, you know, as I understand it, if you do a pop culture reference, you have to clear it with the person you're referencing. So someone had to go to Danzig or Danzig's people and say, uh, yeah, we want to use some of your posters. In what room? Oh, it's the room of this guy who performs in a lot of snuff films. Yeah, okay, that's our kind of people. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, I feel like Danzig would have been totally down with this. But yeah, this guy's a big Danzig fan. Like, everything. Kind of reminded <laughs> me of, like, Troll 2, where the kid just had sports all over his room. This guy just has Danzig all over his room. And it's like, you'd think the one poster would be enough. Yeah. But no, everything's Danzig. And yet, the song that he's listening to, not a Danzig yeah, song. Yeah, I couldn't catch what this, what that song was. But yeah, not, not Danzig. It is Aphex Twins' Come to Daddy. Oh, hey, fair, yeah. hey, fitting. Uh, he keeps walking around, and there's, I think, the best jump scare, if you want to call it this movie, is when the music kicks back in. He's like, oh shit, he's there, or he's somewhere around here. Goes back up to his room, looks around, doesn't see him. Machine jumps at him, and they start fighting in the hallway. They, like, crash through the window and then roll out into a cemetery that's right next to the house in the rain. So fucking nice. This is a really dramatic scene. These are two really dramatic motherfuckers that are just going to wrestle in the cemetery in the rain next to the highway. So there's just all of this motion in the scene, that motion of the cars and the slickness of the light. It's it's just really cool. Dramatic, but cool. Mm. And it's a hilarious moment, too, like almost intentionally comical, where... After Nick Cage falls out the window, Machine's going to climb out onto the window, but it does not support his <laughs> limited agility or yeah. his weight, so he just goes crashing <laughs> off this thing. And you're like, smooth, dude, yeah. smooth. Oh, so you're boy. already getting the sense that this guy is not actually some sort of superhero demon. Like, he is just a middle-aged guy that just fell off his roof. Yeah. They're going to, yeah, have this wrestle in the cemetery. At some point, Nick Cage gets the upper hand, and tells machine to take off his mask because somehow at the when machine knew that nick cage was in the mm. house he put his little gimp mask on which is the dopiest looking gimp mask first of all we have not fully articulated that enough he never has the mouth like zipper pulled all the way shut so like there's this weird gaping imagine someone is doing in with their real face a bad elvis lip and then translate that to a gimp mask, and that's kind of what this looks like. It's like what Derpy the My Little Pony is, yeah. but the equivalent in gimp masks <laughs> is what's happening here. And it Derpy looks hilarious. Gimp. At some point, he reveals his face, and he's just this middle-aged, average-looking yeah. dude. Twist! It's a twist! It was really the sheriff from True Blood! <laughs> Also true. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, it was funny because at the time, what this actor was doing right beforehand, a bit part that he played was in The Devil's Advocate, or at the beginning of the movie, yes. that's the guy that Keanu Reeves is defending, and he's, like, accused of being a child molester. And while the kid that accuses him is giving testimony, we can see this guy, like, rubbing his crotch 
<laughs> like, this guy's had a career is like, what we're saying yeah yeah it's just one of those moments the movie is telling you this guy might be guilty of it yeah. you just just want to put that out there but yeah it's like what were you expecting a monster you know like <laughs> nicholas cage is confused and i like what the movie is going to try to is going to say here i just wish it feels a little clunky the way that it says it because the guy says i i don't know what answers you're looking for here man mom didn't beat me Daddy didn't molest me. I wasn't tortured or anything. I just like doing what I do. Yeah, although it is kind of like, like, what are you expecting, a monster? It's like, well, in a way, he... Kind of? Yeah. He isn't not. I mean, yeah. he's, a, <laughs> he's a straight, middle-aged white man upholding the misogynistic patriarchy. So in a way, that might be as monstrous as you possibly could be. So like, yeah, this is exactly what we were expecting with some like random dude who lived with his mother that got off on raping women like that. That tracks like, yes, this is what we were expecting. The true monsters are the ones that we made along the way. Yes, but at the same time, it was a fun eschewing of expectations within the context of 90s cinema because we've had up until that point, right, this escalation of horror films like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Friday the 13th where we had these slasher villains that were usually somehow supernaturally othered or physically othered in some mm -hmm. capacity that set them as an outsider apart from the civilized world they were attacking and so there is a direct relational thing happening here with this idea of like no nah, this is this isn't friday the 13th this is halloween it's just it's everybody else it reminded me a lot of yeah the you know the what's been said a lot about michael myers the, from halloween is that What's truly terrifying about the kid is that he wasn't a traumatized kid at all. He just was some kid from the suburbs in an idyllic neighborhood who started killing people for no fucking reason. And that is an existential terror. Which is why Rob Zombie's Halloween remake should have never happened. But I do pitch that we do Halloween and Rob Zombie's Halloween at some point. Oh, like, God. In a that's, combo boy, that's some cruelty on me right there. I'll yeah. tell you. Wow, boy. But uh, no, I, I like what the movie was trying to do there. I feel like that was something that could have been, I don't know, revised a little bit or, I don't know, I found a better way of like delivering because that is, as it is, it just seems to be like there's action, 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 take off the mask, moral, action, 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 action. So mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah, it's a little villain monologue like on the nose. Yeah, yeah, I know. Again, nothing like bad. It doesn't like ruin the movie for me or anything, but it was like one thing I thought, Okay, yeah, it's a little on the nose, but fair enough. I like what they're going for. Although I do like that they have a little bit of his psyche coming in here where he does stipulate that it's not the blood, it's not the fear necessarily that he gets off on. It's the moment that the knife goes in and mm -hmm. the surprise. Actually, I was thinking of kind of the prestige, like Hugh Jackman in the prestige. Where oh, it's like, God. It, it's yeah. the look on their faces. And so that is what gets this guy off, right? It's the look on their faces, the idea that <laughs> this could happen to them. Yeah. And it is an absolute sense of power and control over somebody's moment. So I thought that was kind of a cool, insightful look at his sexuality um, mm -hmm. in a certain way. I think it, he, right before he gets stabbed, he even says to Nicolas Cage, can you feel how hard I am right now? Yeah. Nicholas Cage. <laughs> and Nick Cage just says, yeah, it's, uh, I didn't want to say anything, but damn, 
Congrats on that. Congrats, man. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> thank you. Um, yes, thank you. <laughs> so then, uh, yeah, he he leaves him stabbed in the middle of this cemetery. <laughs> it is raining. It is night. The but rain. they are by a major highway. Yeah. And there are other houses in this neighborhood. So you're wondering, like, is this the best choice? <laughs> and he's going to drive his own semi-stabbed body to a hospital and, like, flop out in front of the emergency room. Then we're going to pick up with this kind of just like post scene of him back at home with his family, and he is going to receive a letter from Mary Ann Matthews' mother thanking him for writing to her and revealing who he is and his actual kind of role in this, and mentions that they are probably the only ones who ever really cared about Mary Ann. And my first thought is like, whoa, whoa, whoa wait. So does this mean that you wrote about the murders in a letter oh. that you sent in the post to this random woman? <laughs> like, this is like the true sequel to 8mm is that 20 years down the line, someone involved in these murders is going to find this snuff letter. <laughs> <laughs> the snuff letter! Snuff letter, yes! Insinuating, I killed these men and I don't feel bad about it. But, uh, yeah, it, it ends on a quasi, like, not actually an uplifting beat. And apparently the studios wanted it to be more uplifting. And Joel Schumacher's like, nah, I think you guys are, you're older than that. <laughs> you know that this world is bleak and terrible and there are consequences. And Yeah, I think what makes, shit this, just sucks. What makes it work is, uh, is Nicholas Cage is reading this letter out in his yard after he's just picked up the mail. He looks at his wife, who is, like, looking back at him, like, are you okay like how you doing there and he kind of half smiles at her but he's still like the that's still the face of a broken man so it's like he gets a glimmer of light but he's still in a world of dark of darkness and he knows it yeah so that's eight millimeter that is eight millimeter and this is like the weird kind of tone that we're talking about and that somehow throughout this film sex becomes and is displayed as something that's both sleazy and horrible but it's also boring and apathetic to the characters within the space at the same time and that tone comes off to viewers as well is that it feels like it's morally judgmental against this world of pornography and yet at the same time nothing alternative rises above it and characters are just kind of filling this world of sexual bombardment, but nobody really seems to be that sexually invested. There's not moments of drawn-out eroticism. And so that's what's really interesting mm -hmm. about this movie to me, I think, is this very strange tone about just the banality of sexual violence. Yeah, I think it kind of reminds me a bit of what I mentioned people were always criticizing Showgirls for, that people would say about Showgirls. This movie has so much sex in it, but it's the least sexy thing of all time. And my response was just, yeah, that's the fucking point. You're not meant to be aroused by this. This is showing you something that is can be equal parts horrific and crazy. But yeah, if you're coming into this wanting to get, like literally get off, you were coming to the wrong movie. Well, I mean, sort of. Well, and that even includes people who might be in it for the hardcore pornography. So that's kind of the interesting thing is that people who are into more sort of softcore vanilla stuff, this is not going to be their type of sexual landscape. But then even if you are into various forms of fetishism or hardcore endeavors or even snuff and rape stuff, this 
is not the film for that audience either because it doesn't exploit and fetishize far enough and so we don't really get the snuff moments we don't really get the graphic hardcore porn moments so we get this detective experiencing this world but you're not going to be satisfied if you're in it for the snuff angle on a sexual level either. So when we say that this is not a sexual film to most people, that is not a statement of, oh, because people aren't into snuff films. No, no, no. There are tons of people who are into watching people die. That really goes not even necessarily on a porn level, but into a true crime level. True crime is one of the highest rated genres right now. Yeah. Unsolved Mysteries gets a a lot of viewers, true crime podcasts get a lot of listeners. People really like to just dwell in other people's tragedies. And when a tragedy happens, newsreel footage of the dead body goes really well. So I, for, I think I read about the comment about something about the commentary somewhere. Did, did Joel Schumacher tell some story about Montel Williams somewhere in that commentary? Uh, I don't think so. Okay. Okay. I forget how I was reading about this, but. There's this famous uh, story that back when uh, Princess Diana was killed in that car wreck, uh, when she was being taken away, all these reporters were around here and got all sorts of like really grisly footage of her death. And no one wanted to touch that footage because the reporters were more or less the cause of Diana's death because they were trying to get away from the paparazzi that were hounding her so hardcore at the time. And so no news outlet would touch that footage. And uh, I think a week after the accident, Montel Williams, uh, who was a daytime talk show host, for those of you who don't remember him, I think he, is he still, I don't know, whatever, it doesn't yeah. matter. But he announced, okay, guys, we got the footage. And right after the commercial break, we're going to play it. They go to commercials, switchboards are going crazy with calls from people like, oh, my God, that's just terrible. Oh, dear God. A lot of people are tuning in because, like, just so enraged about this. They come back from commercial, and Montel's looking at the camera, and he says, okay, I didn't buy the footage, but you didn't change the channel either. Okay, yeah, that story actually was in the commentary, okay. but I forgot the Montel Williams part. Like, oh, I just okay. remember okay. the Princess Die part. So, in a way, 8mm is that tone where it's promising to show you something and it actually doesn't, but you're sitting there the whole yeah. time waiting for it. And it becomes more of a commentary yeah, on the audience in some ways. So one of the questions then is, what do people watch this film for if it's not actually for the exploitation angle? Because this movie is many things, but it's not actually exploitational on the underground porn scene way. At the time that this came out, and one of the reasons why it had such negative reviews and still does is because people didn't quite know what to watch this film for <laughs> in terms of whether they came away feeling morally judged somehow or whether they came away feeling morally outraged seemed like equal possibilities. <laughs> and what I find most fascinating about this film is not its moral stance, because the moral stance of this is ambiguous. Apparently, however, people did ask Joel Schumacher all the time, so is this your moral stance on pornography? And his response in the commentary is like, obviously the people who ask me that question don't know me because I'm a big fan of pornography. Oh, and, nice. Yeah, and he also um, was surprised how many people were morally outraged by this film that they thought that this was a morally sleazy piece of work. And he's like, first of all, why does that matter? Um, because there are so few 
people that are accepted as moral arbitrators that people most people do not accept like the pope or their parents or you know political world leaders or whatever as moral arbitrators so why in the world would you accept a film as your moral arbitrator like why are you saying mm. that this film has to uphold what you think of as morality one way or the other or that the film critics somehow i think there was also the comment on like film critics were starting to say like no this is a terrible immoral piece of work and it's like well why would people listen to you about that <laughs> like nobody listens to, to other people about morality and so, yeah, like the more, I don't know. How do you feel about the morals of this film? I'm fine with them personally. Do you feel judged in some way no, or not no. judged? That's uh, really hearing that, that that was most people's reaction to this film is surprising to me. Like I didn't feel judged by anything. Perhaps it's just because we're both of a generation that's grown up on the internet and we've seen all sorts of ridiculous, terrifying, horrible, horrible things. There's nothing in this movie that, can frighten us or scare us or really there's nothing about the content of the movie that turns its face on us to say like oh look at you you enjoyed it too didn't you like yeah i did enjoy this movie's fucking awesome well, i don't think that the 90s audience the most of them did not feel judged it was just that mm. that's also an option if you're in the pool of people who enjoy this material um most people thought that it was a sleazy horrible thing to look at and <laughs> well engage with as a topic for cinema once again that like you can explore violence but you can't explore sex right but in terms of yeah the generation that grows up on the internet one of the my favorite things about this film is this very specific time capsule quality of it it becomes a very fascinating film to watch in the lens of what porn is today versus what porn was in the 90s so perhaps we should get into some of that in terms of what was legal and what wasn't legal. Because like Showgirls, Joel Schumacher and his team did do a lot of research into the underground world of under-the-counter pornography. So there are parts to this that are surprisingly accurate when I don't think most people that would be their takeaway when watching this, right? Because it seems so quaint that this type of porn is illegal. I don't know. Did you get the sense that this porn should be illegal? The snuff film? I mean... No, just like the underground, because he takes Max California to go and find underground stuff, right? Or right. this idea that snuff films, even simulated fake ones, were things that people wouldn't sell. Right. Seems like a quaint idea, because if you look up snuff film on Google, you can find simulated snuff films in like three seconds. Right. So this quest to find even simulated ones. Yeah. Well, as someone who owns an autographed copy of August Underground, no, I clearly have no problem with simulated snuff films, which is basically all that that film is. Yeah, and what most horror movies in certain ways are. But I mean, you know, he goes to, in the underground place, he goes to, he sees the child porn. Obviously, child porn is off the table. No, that's not, that can't be illegal. Yeah, child porn is still very much illegal, but a lot of the porn that they were selling down there, it's confusing to a modern audience as to whether or not mm -hmm. porn was ever illegal to that capacity. One of the big things that was prohibited at the time that this movie was taking place is the idea that you can have violence 
and you can have sex, penetrative sex, but you couldn't have both at the same time. Mm -hmm. So you could have BDSM videos with no penetrative sex, oh. or you could have penetrative sex videos with no BDSM. Just the idea that there were penetrative videos in which BDSM was happening was actually an under-the-counter type of pornography. This also wow. seems kind of ridiculous because kink.com brings this to you hourly. <laughs> so what's going on there? What happened between 1999 and 2020 that lets us access this stuff very quickly? And it's not just the internet. So where this illicitness goes, so here's the deep dive on the legality of porn. Take us there. Get deep. This goes back to it. a little thing called the Comstock Act, which actually happened during the Grant administration in 1873. I'm going to mostly bullet point some stuff, so it's not going to be the Please long do. hour. But it does start in 1873 with the Comstock Act with a fellow named Anthony Comstock, who was the creator of the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice. And this act that went into effect created a federal law in which the suppression of trade in and circulation of obscene literature and articles of immoral use became prohibited by the U.S. government. And so that really sets up this idea that the transport, sale, and distribution of things deemed obscene became illegal, quote-unquote. This, at the time, actually included everything from erotic stuff to birth control to right. information on abortion. There's a whole list of stuff that went under the Comstock Act and a lot of that was you can't distribute it through the post, you can't carry it on railways, like there are all these little things. One of the major issues, though, when we're talking about the distribution of obscene materials is the definition of obscenity. And to this day, there is not an accurate, really defining boundary of what is quote unquote obscene. This is going to become a very major issue in 1973. We will be looking more at porn in the 1970s next week with Boogie Nights, because that was the golden era of pornography. So we're going to kind of gloss Quote, over some golden age porn. Quote unquote, golden era. Yeah. Yeah. The golden era was sort of underway. And so it mattered to courts suddenly what could and couldn't be distributed. And so we get this case in 1973 called Miller versus California. And that sort of revisited some of the transport and distribution laws and established what is called the Miller test. And so the Miller test is also not clearly defined, but is what <laughs> is allegedly used to define obscenity in terms of, well, wh what would the Miller test say? And overall, it said that possession was okay of obscene materials, but transport and distribution is still potentially prohibited depending on whether or not it classifies as obscene. And these classifications are going to have to meet, quote unquote, contemporary community standards. So that's an important phrase in porn legalities, the contemporary community standards. At the time, contemporary community standards had a different definition of what was obscene than what we do today and what they did in the 90s. So in the 90s, contemporary community standards still deemed that this violence and sex mashup was well, some or classified as obscene, and thus its distribution was prohibited. Things get a little muddled, so I won't do all of the the different sort of definitions of obscenity. But oh, I will say though? that even still to this day, this is the classification of obscenity and prohibition 
varies state by state. And mm-hmm. so there's not an overall federal thing. When the internet started to come out in 1994, there was already talk of holy shit, how are we going to regulate the distribution of hardcore materials? This was something that half the states had already signed petitions and bills to limit. Clinton signed the Communications Decency Act in 1996 to limit sort of distribution. And so this is right in the time that nine or nine millimeter, that eight millimeter is coming out, right? This is three years before eight millimeter. Mm-hmm. We have the president of the United States at the time signing the Communications Decency Act, which is going to prohibit and regulate still further this Miller decision of regulation regulating obscenity. So this is still all a very big issue. And also at the time, hardcore porn, which they say a lot in 8mm, was still classically defined as synonymous for that which can be legally repressed. This is another term like snuff films that have since shifted and changed, right? Today, hardcore pornography, if you hear the term hardcore, really just means anything with penetration in it yeah and there was that kind of yeah lack of fully definitional boundaries of hardcore so there was i think even at the time of the miller case this discussion of whether or not hardcore porn should be used as a legal term and for a while it was hardcore porn and child porn were the two sort of classifications that remained as terminology but hardcore porn has started to go by the wayside So now it's just obscene materials because now you go into Pornhub and hardcore porn is like a sub tag. So obviously that hardcore (laughs) porn is not a synonym for that, which can be legally repressed because it's being distributed on their websites. So as the web became more popular, porn became more accessible, the quote unquote contemporary community standards began to evolve. And so the prohibitory nature of this obscene material began to kind of shift and relax by its own legal definition. But uh, let's see, other little kind of interesting tidbits about porn legality is that Denmark became the first to legalize pornography back in 1969. Wow, Denmark, them Danes are on it. Yes, the UK did not legalize it officially until 2000, a year after 8mm came out. Wow. (laughs) Which seems so recent. Yeah. (laughs) When you're thinking like, shit, like hardcore pornography was technically not legally able to be distributed in the UK (laughs) until 2000. Once again, this is sometimes, you know, like whether or not somebody would prosecute, it's sort of dependent, but Mm -hmm. it was safer to just underground swap meet your porn. Right. <laughs> so this is a surprisingly realistic enough representation of some of the more niche porn markets mm-hmm. in the 90s that we see in this film. Yeah. My thought with the whole, when when we go underground or we go into the, the houses, aside from the fact that there is child pornography there, really these setups just remind me of, of a convention that would be held in a convention center or a hotel ballroom where you have all, all the tables set up and, you know, here, check out my stuff, check out my stuff. Oh, check out my stuff over here. And it's just variety, something for everybody. It's more or less just been brought out of the uh, the basement and into the convention hall. Yeah, and there's something that is kind of great about the aesthetic of the illicit nature of underground swap meets or underground sex clubs. There are way more benefits to legalizing things and to having things more accepted. I wouldn't change that. But 
there is something great about going into like an old warehouse with barrel drum heaters <laughs> to participate in your BDSM endeavors in like the meatpacking district in New York. I would say I miss those days, but there's actually still accessible points of that. I know. The the default aesthetic for adult film stores nowadays is just some store that while all the windows are blocked out and you can't see through the door, the whole place is just lit by bright fluorescent lights and the shelves are all white and it's clean and just yeah, it's just boring. I mean, the content isn't boring, but the display is just, eh, okay. Yeah, put them up on a shelf. Great. Yeah, because the taboo plays a big role in <laughs> sexuality. Yeah, now we just have to push for for higher stuff. <laughs> the, the taboo aspect of it definitely depends on where it is. Something I always I, I look back on fondly. When I was in a summer off from college, I worked at a movie gallery which was the blockbuster that went out of business first, what have you. But I worked at the one movie gallery in town that had an adult film section that was in the back. And sometimes I would go back to restock the films that came in, and there might be someone back there looking at a tape or a video. And when I walked back, they would immediately like put it back on the shelf, like, oh, what? Oh, what? I wasn't looking at that. What are, you, what are you talking about? And I'm like, dude, there's not much else you could be doing back here. Heaven forbid. Well, I, I do remember the time where... VHSs and whatnot were so potentially like at risk of being stolen or like slipped into things that they started putting porn VHSs into those really big oh, wow. boxes. Do you remember that? They <laughs> were never, like three that, no. bigger than uh, regular VHS boxes. And so when you would like stack them with other VHSs, they would just be very visible. <laughs> <laughs> it was super great. Oh, quaint times. Quaint nice, times. nice. Well, real quick, a thing I wanted to touch on about this film was the original draft of the movie. And what's interesting to me about that is that we talked briefly about how this film has, not briefly, but we talked about how this film kind of has a slight puritanical look towards pornography. What's interesting about the original draft of this thing by Andrew Kevin Walker is that that tone is even more obvious. What? Yeah, the, I've mentioned a few minor differences between the script, but one of the biggest differences thematically that I noticed was that the original script wants to paint a much more like homey look for our main character, uh, Nicolas Cage's character. Like There are extra scenes of him, his wife and children that we don't have in the movie. There are extra scenes of him like out bowling with his friends and just he has like a very oh shucks attitude. And it's really trying to nail home that this guy comes from a very what he would consider a civilized life and a very quaint and calm world that he is very comfortable with and that going into this other world is going to be very, very bad for him. There's a like a speech that Max California gives that wasn't really, I don't think was in the movie, that was so strange. Now, keep in mind, another weird thing about the movie versus the original script is that Joel Schumacher took what were boring locations in the script and made them amazing. They never go to like that S&M dungeon. They never go to that brothel house. Those two scenes are in the movie. Mm -hmm. The scene in the, the bar that you mentioned that looks so cool that a conversation in the script happens at a motel swimming pool. And the only thing that we're told is happening is that there's an old woman diving into the pool while they have mm -hmm. this conversation. So, yeah, Schumacher spiced that script up in a big, bad way, and it really worked. I think there was one scene that instead of walking through the warehouses was supposed to take place in a car, right? That... They're going to drive to a bank to get the film reel or yeah, something. And, yeah. Because Schumacher in the commentary is like, 
Yeah, I'm, I'm not shooting a really long dialogue scene in a car. No, that's no. <laughs> that's no, the no. most tedious fucking thing I could think of. No. Yeah, no, and you know, in the script, like he, because every new city that he goes to, Nicolas Cage's character puts the film into a safety deposit box to keep it safe. And that's just a detail that you didn't need. There's a lot of scenes that in the script that you, I'm like, why do we need to see him doing this? There's a scene that shows him buying all the surveillance equipment that he uses to spy on James Gandolfini's character. And I thought, why would he not already have that stuff? Why is he buying it? Why do we have to watch him buy it? I'm okay with him just having surveillance equipment. He's a private investigator, but what have you. Uh, there's a scene in the coffee shop where Max gives this really weird speech, and I, I want to get your, your take on it. So right. they're sitting in the coffee shop, and again, they sit in the coffee shop instead of going to the S&M club, so color your disappointment there already. Uh, <laughs> Max says, You've got Penthouse, Playboy, Hustler, etc. No one even considers them pornography anymore. Then there's mainstream hardcore. Uh, the X. Uh, the difference is penetration. That's hardcore. That whole industry up in the valley. Writers, directors, porn stars. They're celebrities, or they think they are. They pump out 150 videos a week. A week! They've even got a Porno Academy Award. America loves pornography. Anybody tells you they never use pornography, they're lying. Somebody's buying those videos. Somebody's out there spending $900 million a year on phone sex. Know what else? It's only going to get worse. More and more, you'll see perverse hardcore coming into the mainstream because that's evolution. Desensitization. Oh my god, Elvis Presley's wiggling in his hips. How offensive. Nowadays, MTV's showing girls dancing around in thong bikinis with their asses hanging out. Know what I mean? For the porn addict, big tits aren't big enough after a while. They have to be the biggest tits ever. Some porn chicks are putting in breast implants bigger than your head, literally. Soon, Playboy's gonna be Penthouse. Penthouse is gonna be Hustler. Hustler will be hardcore, and hardcore films will be medical films. People will be jerking off to women laying around with open wounds. There's nowhere else for it to go. There's always somewhere else to go. Uh, yeah. <laughs> It's curious because I'm not sure is his problem that the world is becoming so desensitized and it's going to keep escalating and this is a moral problem or is his issue sort of like I vocalized that there's something sad when it's too accessible <laughs> and where's the excitement? Where's the perversity? Is he just worried that his porn's not going to do it for him as much? Based on like little moments again sprinkled throughout the original script, it really does seem to be that he is that he and the writer are scared that America is becoming too desensitized to pornography or to you know scandalous activity. And it's easy to look back like with hindsight on that because if that's where America was going, you know Janet Jackson could have showed her nipple for. 0. 0.0 seconds on a Super Bowl and no one would have cared, but Janet Jackson did show her nipple for 0.7 seconds and the world lost its goddamn mind. Yeah, especially in America, there's enough still, not even lingering, but very prevalent puritanical bullshit that mm -hmm. has not made it a hedonist playground by any means in terms of across the board. Yeah. I think there will always be moral outrage. To right. keep us in check, oh, I guess. Oh, for sure, you know. I mean, if there's no moral outrage, then it's not fun. But uh, moral outrage can get a little well. tedious, but you know. <laughs> but yeah, there's that. Uh, another odd aspect of the film, that line that Joaquin Phoenix has, you dance the devil, devil doesn't change, the devil changes you, was not in the original script. And apparently Andrew Kevin Walker saw that line in a movie trailer and said, I didn't write that line. This movie is going to be terrible. And he has never seen the movie, as far as I know. 
apparently his experience working on this film was much different than his experience with Seven, where David Fincher really wanted him to be a collaborative member of the team and had him on set all the time. Whereas with this film, the script more or less went to Joel Schumacher and Schumacher just said, okay, I have the script. I can work with that. Thank you, Andrew. You, you're done. You don't need to be here. Which is more common, to yeah, be fair. That's, that's like what I was thinking. And uh, you know, like in interviews, he says like, oh man, being a screenwriter has got to be the most unfulfilling career that you can possibly be in. And I thought, did you not know what line of work you were getting into? This is a very well-known thing. That yeah, scripts pick something else then, man. Yeah. Like, <laughs> nobody's telling you you have to do this. <laughs> not to not to tell you your business, Mister Walker, but I don't think you get what's going on here. So he's never seen the film. Wait, maybe he's just a disciple of like Esther House, where he's like the screenwriter is God. Uh, yeah, well, Esther House. Uh, <laughs> the to- the ending of the movie is also very different, where Nicolas Cage does track down uh, the machine in a very similar fashion. But Machine never says anything. Uh, their fight is goes all throughout the house. Uh, Machine is described as being a gigantic, bulging uh, bodybuilder type of guy, uh, as opposed to you know the somewhat oafish middle-aged man that we see in the movie. And the description of the fight scene, it's as if that Nicolas Cage, he should not be alive by the end of this thing because it's just him getting choked and punched and beaten and tossed around the entire house. Things eventually go downstairs because Nicolas Cage drops his, or Tom Wool, I should say, the main character, drops his gun down the laundry chute. They have to go down to the basement. They're tripping around on laundry, which, oh boy, yeah, that's, that's intense. You know, when you think about that versus this fight scene in a torrential downpour of rain in a cemetery, you're like, okay, come on. Joel Schumacher knew where to put this goddamn fight scene at. They fight. Eventually, Tom Wool chokes machine with some laundry wire or something, and the script makes the very deliberate note that we never see Machine's face. It says that Tom Will pulls the mask off, looks at him horrified, but the audience never sees Machine's face. And that's it. Machine never says anything in that last scene. And to me, that's kind of underwhelming. Maybe there's a good angle to do that from, but I like the movie version much more. Yeah, I do too. There's something about revealing a perpetrator's face and taking away the power, right? Especially if they're the type of masked predator or shadowed predator in some capacity that he clearly used his mask as a distancing mechanism. And so to bring him more formally into the narrative is I think an essential choice in a way because he's not, he's not the monster Yeah. (laughs) overall. He's one of them, but he's not some sort of mythic character. He's just yet another man who gets off on power. In the Oddly, in the original script, Machine does talk in the scene where they kill Max California. Uh, but it's just inconsequential stuff where he just says, Go get him! Or, I'm gonna kill you! Or, stop there! But it's nothing that has any meat to it. Yeah, I feel like if his persona in scene is to be this taciturn executioner that he probably would maintain that if he was still in the mind space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not say anything. So I sounds like I do just like all of Joe Schumacher's decisions <laughs> better. So yeah, Walker needs to chill, even though he brought a seven and sleepy hollow. He yeah. needs to chill. <laughs> I think that was another thing I read about that. He saw this, uh, he didn't get to work in this movie at all. He was like, Oh, fuck it. Fine. I can spend more time working on sleepy hollow. I'm like, well, all right. Whatever works for you. 
I have some screenplay issues with that one too, but I do love the atmosphere of Sleepy Hollow. Okay, so. yeah, I've never seen that one, but I hear I hear it's fun. Yeah, it's beautiful. Oh, we should do that one too because that wouldn't be fun to annotate. Actually, there's yeah. a lot of folklore and stuff that goes into Sleepy Hollow and some changes from the Washington Irving story. Uh, well, speaking of annotations, where should we go next here? Uh, so in terms of escalation, since that came up in the modern age, especially with the internet. We are all about escalation of annotation, so, yeah. So we talked about porn on the internet, let's talk about snuff in the internet. Fucking yes, let's talk about snuff. The thing about snuff films, as we already mentioned, that there are specific definitional boundaries with snuff that have changed over time. The initial origin of the term snuff film apparently is largely credited to 1971 when a man named Ed Sanders wrote a book about the Charles Manson murders <laughs> called yeah. The Family, The Story of Charles Manson's Dune Buggy Attack Battalion. Strange title, mm -hmm. but there we have it. And in this, he posited that Manson may have filmed the murders and he termed this snuff film. So... There's this idea, yeah, that the Manson murders might be out there on tape somewhere. Yeah. Uh, real quick, the podcast You're Wrong About did a quick, did an episode about snuff films, and one of the fun points they make there is that the idea that Manson's coked out, tripping out followers were able to operate eight millimeter film cameras and also commit these murders is kind of ludicrous because it was not easy to film things back then. It wasn't like now we have auto exposure on your camera. No, you had to set your lens. You had to make sure you had the right film stock. Are we in focus? Are the lights going? Okay, great. And now, now coordinate the kill. Oh, we can't. Well, fuck. So <laughs> I like the idea that like, okay, yeah, you think they filmed it, but these people had, didn't have the coordination to pull that off. Are you crazy? Yeah, I'm also not sure why he thought that this was a possibility, because nothing else in investigative history of the Manson murders have suggested that yeah. there were film cameras on set. But either way, there was this sort of pitch. And in 1976, a film with the working title of Slaughter mm -hmm. was purchased with the intent to capitalize on yeah. this Manson film murder idea. And... The title is changed to Snuff, oh, and nice it, title. in its advertising, insinuated that part of those Manson's filmed murders were in this movie. Oh, okay. It brought people to the seats. It was weird that that would be a thing, because it also seems to be like a kind of cannibal holocaust type of thing in which... It takes place in South America, so I'm not really sure why it would also have the Sharon Tate murder, but they did splice in footage of an actress, a pregnant actress getting killed. So it was this weird mashup mm -hmm. of pop culture stuff. Not a great movie, not great effects. It does not look realistic at all, but there you have it. I've seen that that ending scene, and yeah, like it's her fingers being cut off or something like that, and you think... Okay, if you made sure the transfer was really bad, you could kind of see it. It's kind of it's basically the idea of like what August Underground does because that's all found footage style of a v of a VHS camera, and there they can fake the effects a little bit better because you have the veneer of VCR distortion to work with. But a sixty millimeter film transferred in high definition, no, you it's going to be very obvious that it's fake. I'm pretty sure that Snuff was also the film that had the tagline "Made in South America, where life is cheap." That is the tagline to the snuff oh, film. Yeah. Yes, that's the stuff. And all its various uncomfortable <laughs> glory. Yeah. Okay, so 
We also have brought up the, the term August Underground a couple of times. There are a series of films, if you can call them that, that are going to come out uh, by a young director named Fred Vogel, who, trying to get a leg up in the horror industry, used these found footage aesthetic to create a series of films called August Underground that are from the POV of a handheld camera and a serial killer's accomplice mm -hmm. as this one serial killer goes and kind of wrecks havoc and kills a whole bunch of people. Fun tie-in that August Underground is going to be one of the films that we do have court cases against obscenity charges oh. when Fred Vogel tried to bring August Underground into a uh, some like film screening festival, whatever in Canada, he was stopped at the border and held for a while and fined for uh, trafficking obscenity or obscene materials. So this was a thing that at the time <laughs> was legally prohibited. Now, now you can find it, you know, on YouTube or whatever. Uh, but but don't they're boring. Yeah, they're, they're, that is, I'll say that like... The mystique is better than the execution. Once you get over the fact that it's just a gore fest, it's really a boring movie. <laughs> Sorry, Fred Vogel. Yeah, but I, I like where, where your head was at. Like, mm -hmm. I, I like the idea that you were doing this POV serial killer camera. Now, we're going to get a couple of other things that are going to lead to the, the snuff film mystique. Deep Throat's Linda Lovelace, at some point, became a part of the anti-porn feminist uh, movement. Yeah, from what I understand about her, she kind of said that she was really coerced into doing those films. Uh, she said something like, if you watch those films, you, you're watching me be raped or something like that. Like Her husband so, really pushed her into it. Unfortunate. Yeah. However, she also testified in court on different cases that she had seen multiple snuff films oh. and then when asked to produce these snuff films Ugh. she was like i don't know but that <laughs> okay. like kind of helped aid the validity of the snuff film claim wow all right was that you had this major porn actress from the golden era that testified that she had seen multiple snuff films and then we're gonna get guinea pig 2 would you like <laughs> to talk to us about guinea pig 2 look all i have to say is is that if you're with the FBI, and in 1992, you get a call from Charlie fucking Sheen, and he tells you he's just watched a snuff film, one, you do not question whether or not he's telling the truth, and two, you check that shit out. So, <laughs> this is something crazy that happened. I might be off on the date on this, but the guinea pig films were basically uh, some Japanese films that were simulated snuff films, more or less. Uh, I did not investigate them quite as much as I really wanted to, but, you know, we only have time for so many joys in our life. What are you going to do? But one of them got in the hands of Charlie Sheen, and apparently there's a famous story about how he called the FBI and said, oh my God, they, they, this company, they made snuff films. There are people dying in these things. And they investigated, they talked to the company. They're like, no, do you want to meet the actors? They're fine. You're good. Yeah, they had a documentary on how the special effects were made. Mm -hmm. These special effects still largely do hold up, which is really impressive. They nice. come out of the 1980s resurgence and in an interest in the interior of the body because special effects were getting better and revitalized. Mm -hmm. And the company that made the effects for the earlier on guinea pig films were really good in the industry. Flower of Flesh and Blood was the guinea pig too that somehow nice title. Charlie Sheen had been given a VHS copy of in 1991 and he f was convinced that he had just seen a murder and did call the FBI and it was a whole thing. So that was the first sort of really like 
Well, it's not even the first real legal investigation into a potential snuff film because that had previously happened with Cannibal Holocaust. But that's a that's a film for another time. Mm. There's yes, also a fun little thing that I found from the 90s in which a person had come across a film reel, not a film reel, but I think it was video, and it seemed to have a man dying on the ground or a dead body on the ground. It seemed to be this aerial view, and they were like, what the fuck? And so they turned it into the police, and what it turned out to be was that Trent Reznor is the body in this film, and they had been shooting a Nine Inch Nails video, (laughs) and the videographer had tied a camera to a bunch of helium balloons to try to get this aerial shot, and a gust of wind had carried these helium balloons like miles outside of where they had been shooting and the camera sort of landed and so some poor dude found this camera of like what looked like a murder in a body um and it was of trent reznor there you go that just seemed kind of fun oh there was also actually a court ruling of the guinea pig films as well there was a british man who tried to bring a copy into the uk and was fined because the courts ruled and categorized guinea pig after watching it as quote a snuff film because it is so well simulated that that is the impression it creates Mm. so that was also a film that was determined legally prohibited as obscenity or obscene materials Mm. in the early 2000s and is on record as yeah being prohibited from entry into an area there you go those are all these kind of quasi-simulated snuff. Mm. Now, let's get into the actual stuff. About time. 1996, there was a website called Rotten.com. And this was really, I think, the first of its kind in terms of a website that was set up specifically for grotesque, gruesome uploads. It is categorized generally as, quote-unquote, mostly weird medical conditions and accidents with meat grinders. But there were... An array of things. And this is going to lead later on to a boom of these websites in the 2000s, starting with Ogreish is probably the the big granddaddy of these sort of gore sites. Mm-hmm. But there are a bunch of them now, and they largely cultivate actual footage of deaths and gruesome accidents, mm. usually. I think Ogrish became a little bit more infamous because they got a hold of the footage of the people jumping off of the two towers. And so that was uh, during 9-11. Yeah. So that was uploaded to their site. Mm-hmm. They had a lot of political executions uploaded to their site. A lot of mm-hmm. news reels of genocides, like just a whole bunch of just stuff that real deaths were happening. And this is where we start getting kind of the idea of snuff is just films in which people die because we do have just tons of examples of that. This is not considered an illegal endeavor um, at this point by community standards because there were some different laws at the time that protect Mm -hmm. third-party websites from being absolved of any user-generated content that's sort of uploaded. So to just be the messenger is not a legal issue. Mm-hmm. And then you get Luca Magnota. And Luca Magnota is a Canadian serial killer of sorts. And he is probably now best known from the Netflix documentary Don't Fuck with Cats. Oh, okay. He started uploading a series of videos of varying forms of torture and whatnot to bestgore.com. 
this is going to culminate in him uploading a video called One Lunatic, One Ice Pick, which does have in its contents the kidnap, murder, dismemberment, and then sexual acts with another young Canadian man. And people, when they were watching this, in an 8mm sort of fashion, were like, I think this is real. Like, I Mm -hmm. think we actually just watched something that is a real snuff film. And so the internet started investigating. They started turning it into police 10 days before the police actually did realize that the guy in this video was missing and dead. So when we say snuff films are an urban legend, in the modern day, they're actually not if we're going to classify this as a snuff film, Mm -hmm. right? So what it comes down to is... Is it a snuff film or is it prohibited from being a snuff film because it wasn't contracted by a third party that paid Luca Magnota to do this, but it was done for his own right sort of perverse pleasure? And yeah, he's certainly not the first serial killer to film his stuff and mm-hmm. make it accessible to the public. But that one really became a little bit of a gray area for traditional snuff film values because he actually had advertised the coming of this video about a week before he would have trailers for it good god so if you're drumming up a third party audience with the expectation that there is a third party audience Mm -hmm. is that enough to classify as a traditional snuff film especially since nobody even uses the traditional definition of snuff film anymore because it's not a legal term like it's not (laughs) something that has rigid boundaries it's it kind of shifts with the community standards like the rest of obscenity Mm. this is just one example yeah of uh, the different types of stuff that's out there so yeah whether or not snuff films are quote-unquote urban legends as a folklorist i would say we use that perhaps with a grain of salt because certainly most of them Mm. are but whether or not they all are really just depends on how you're defining snuff film yeah i mean it does come down to just minor details at that point because like you said this guy who was uploading the stuff to the internet the thing like advertising yeah i'm gonna do this the only thing that would prevent that from being a snuff film by the definitions of 8mm is, well, no one paid you to do that, though. Nowadays, we consider snuff films to be film in which someone dies. Now, like those Faces of Death videos that were popular for a long time and mm-hmm. that you can still find online. But those were just videos of a death being captured on camera, not something premeditated. And even if it was, in this killer's case, a premeditated thing, no one had commissioned him to commit this crime when he had no intention of doing so beforehand. Yes. Although at the same time, in 8mm, the films that they bought from the delightfully German submissive gentleman in the underground sex club seem to be mass commercially produced. Well, not really mass commercially produced, right? But produced for a whatever third party, the ones that turned out to be simulated stuff. But... In a way, those are just, yeah, is there a distinct third party there? Or was that just producing it for the market? Yeah. Does that matter? So it's also just weird and interesting that people do have this pushback on, oh, but snuff films are urban legend. And it's like, well, that does bring up the question that a lot of people bring up is, does it really, I mean, in some ways, yes, it makes a huge difference if a quote unquote snuff film is simulated or not on a criminal level, on an ethics level, right? That that all goes on set. But in terms of just a video access level for its market audience, or whatever. I don't know. I lost my train of thought there. We can just cut that whole thing. Yeah, we but will. <laughs> what else do we have? Oh, 8mm in general. You were going to talk about 
Well, eight millimeter film or eight millimeter film in general. Uh, in like the movie that they mentioned, there's a film stock Supra Lux five four four. This isn't an actual film stock. It is kind of taking the naming conventions that film stocks have. Uh, Kodak, you would have Ektachrome. Computer for Technicolor for many years was Deluxe. Uh, I believe Fujifilm had a Interna or a Superior Rila uh, name for their film stocks. But I imagine they had to make it up because. If you go to Kodak and you say, hey, can we mention one of your film stocks in this movie about snuff films? Kodak would say, that's not the product placement that we're into. So, no, you can't. I imagine that they're using Super 8 film in this movie, which the difference between Super 8 film and 8mm film is just basically just that it's still film that itself is 8mm wide, you know, the physical celluloid film is. However, the area of the film that can accept the image is a little bit bigger on Super 8 because the sprocket hole has been made smaller. And also, it's a lot easier to use because Super 8 film will come in a pre-rolled cartridge, whereas 8mm film, you have to very carefully in a dark room wind film onto the camera and you know you're opening it up and exposing the film to light whereas with super 8 you never expose the film to light in the process of loading and unloading the cartridges and the camera that we see dino velvet you like holding when he meets nicholas cage and says now oh, you have a, a beautiful face i love the way the light hits it which you know of course you do it's nicholas cage's face and light the light can't hit it in a bad way the camera he holds up looks a lot like a Super 8 camera just based on its like the compartments it has and the style of lens that's using. So, yeah, I would say that. And it, Super 8 was, for most people, home video for many years before uh, VHS tapes came along. That was the easiest, quick and quickest way to film what was going on around you. And for the purposes of a snuff film loop, it also made the most sense because uh, Super 8 film running at 24 frames per second was about two minutes, 45 seconds worth of footage. So you would be very contained to what you could do and it would be pretty easy to loop it you know, in a larger projector if you wanted to. And just realizing what we probably should do is just watch Super 8, the movie, and then just really <laughs> deep dive on the history of 8mm film. This might not be the movie to fully go into all of the 8mm details. We have that available to us. Well, what about Super 8 and a half? Is that a thing? That's Bruce LaBruce's film. Oh, Bruce LaBruce. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Fair enough. Bruce LaBruce. Yeah, that, that, there's a conversation. <laughs> Top five. Top five. Okay, let's go ahead. Let's line these up. Top five slash honorable mention to Catherine Keener because she played a, just a thankless role in this film. She plays his wife, who we didn't even mention because or we barely mentioned because just those scenes make no sense, but she's really good in them and I really like her. So I'm, I feel bad that she had to play this very thankless role in a, in a film that just didn't need her in it. Yeah, fair enough. You're number five. It's not an honorable mention. I'm just going to say that Nick Cage is being exempt from this list. Oh, because I can't, Raider rank. <laughs> that would be blasphemous. Okay. Especially since this isn't like a true Nick Cage film, so mm -hmm. I wouldn't want to put anything above him, but at the same time, it's not pure Nick Cage. Okay. There are a lot of things that are really great about this right. film. So right. Nick Cage is just being exempt. He's just yes. overviewing mm -hmm. this sure. on the side from his godly position. Mm -hmm. Now, number five is 
a man named Michael Dana. Okay. He is the music producer on oh, this. Okay. I loved the music. I think I actually mm-hmm. even had the score to 8mm on CD back in 1999 because I loved this music so much. It's just good. It's just cool and creates a really great atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Right on. Okay. Uh, my number four, I'm going to have to go with Max California, Joaquin Phoenix. I'm sorry I say your name wrong, Joaquin. My bad. Just go back to being called Leaf Phoenix and you'll be fine. Yeah, my my number four, Joaquin Phoenix. Okay, I'm glad we're on <laughs> the same he's page He's fucking there. good in this. He's just good. Yeah, and I like that he was bringing some of those fun suggestions to the role with the piercings and the, the hair color, and I assume some improv lines. Uh, I appreciate that, and I assume that because of this movie, he got noticed and went on to do Gladiator, which is a crazy, fun, big spectacle movie on its own, and he's fantastic in that film. Also, To Die For. I think To Die For is still my favorite role. Oh, okay, yeah. He's so good in that. Very nice. But I think that was maybe a year before. My number three, I'll give it up to Joel Schumacher. Uh, I love all the all the choices he was making. I wish I had had a chance to listen to the commentary because it sounds like he is very endearing in that. And I respect a lot of the changes that he wisely made from the original scripts. And I'm sorry that he had to cut the film for the sake of an R rating. Yeah, holy shit, number three, Joel Schumacher. Uh, okay, you're bugging me. Bugging me a little bit with this one. His his films, they have a style. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of impressive that his name is so well known. As a, He has a certain authorship, even though he's done a lot of different films, like a lot of different types of films. And yet the one style that does remain consistent, as we've kind of mentioned throughout this, is a very specific attention to texture in a way that not all directors do or in a very specific way he has his own sort of fetishism for abandoned places derelict buildings for graffiti for color and light like he just has a lot of textual appreciation in a haunting cool way and yeah i am for it also yeah he's just so sweet he was such a delight on the commentary one of my favorite things that he just brought to this commentary and talked about he's like yeah i was I always thought of myself as this really liberal guy, right? That I I prided myself on being liberal and I always hated hypocrites at the same time. And then I realized how much I hated people who were less liberal than me, which really just makes me a hypocrite. (laughs) You're so sweet. You're so, so aware, Jill Schumacher. But... And he also did talk about that, how much he just loved movies growing up that he was poor. He was on the streets a lot. He, I guess, had a lot of drug addiction and problems hmm. in his early life. And so he does really like these spaces or these abandoned buildings, these warehouses, these graffitied spaces, because these are places to him. They're very real, tangible places. He didn't have money. His family didn't have money for like a TV for the longest time. Oh. So he would sneak into movie theaters and was so inspired by them. And whether people like or hate his films, he is just immensely proud to have left some sort of kind of like pay it forward imprint on the film world that like he's put his stuff out there that hopefully somebody else will see one day and then like become a filmmaker. And so like, he's just, he's just great. I just really like Joel Schumacher. <laughs> it, you know, learning more about him, I do feel bad for the horrible rap that he got uh, from Batman and Robin and, you know, a lot has been said about his film version of Phantom of the Opera, which, I don't know, that, from what I've seen, that movie is just kind of meh, not really horrible, but I don't know, for some Phantom of the Opera fans out there, that it seems like he did a horrible job with it. I wouldn't know. 
I mean, to be fair, the large fault of that goes to Andrew Lloyd Webber. Like, Phantom of the Opera is just not very good. (laughs) And yet, you've got a lot of actors in the movie version that are not first and foremost singers. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that brings a certain issue to the film. But yeah, I will stand by that... Joel Schumacher is not the main issue yeah. of Phantom of the Opera. Well, the, the backlash that Phantom of the Opera had kind of reminded me of how people were always making fun of the movie Cats. I mean, the technical aspects of the movie aside, they were like, oh, the, the plot of this is horrible. And I just thought, what were you expecting? It's Cats. There does, Its plot is not going to make much sense because it's never made any sense. Neither here nor there. I also, like, I can't emphasize enough how important it was to me growing up that Joel Schumacher was an out gay director. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I just, yeah, there's a lot of things that I just really love Joel Schumacher for. Mm -hmm. So he probably should have been maybe second on this list instead of third, but it was a hard choice between these two. What are you going to do? So who's your number two? My number two. It's probably the same. Uh, My number two is Robert Ellsworth, the cinematographer. Okay. Is it the same? No. Okay, good. I, I was that almost, but no. Oh, bugged me too much there. But I was really loving everything that he was doing in this film, as in terms of you know lighting it, dressing it. I mean, obviously the set dresser is a, is a different thing, but it comes down to how like you know you can dress a set however beautifully you want to. It comes down to how well that thing is lit and shot. And Robert Ellsworth brought it in this, and I didn't realize how many of like my favorite looking movies that he had worked on, among them Boogie Nights, which I have a feeling we're going to talk about very soon. Yes, we had too much porn stuff to talk about, so we're breaking this into two parts. We're going to do Golden Age next week. My number two mm-hmm. is Peter Stomer, Stomer, however we're going to pronounce his last name. You mean... Fucking Dino y- Velvet. Yeah. God damn. Fucking Dino so Velvet. Okay. Yeah, well, I mean, that's my number one, is Dino Velvet, so we kind of, kind of joined them there but i like i said uh a lot of the stuff that he was doing in this was not in the original script and uh, that's confirmed with schumacher's commentary that this character was peter stormare's that he was just bringing so much to it that wasn't in the script and it's everything he brings and uses is just fantastic i want to know like did he write these extra lines were they written for him did he just come up with this stuff and Working out with Schumacher on the day. I mean, th- th- just that line. There has to be honor among pornographers and perverts. Otherwise, the entire business falls apart. Like, that is brilliant. Who says that? Yeah, he, he just brings it. Because my number one. Yeah, 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 yeah. Is Robert Elsworth, the right. cinematographer. Okay, all he, right. Uh, he beat out Peter for me. All right. Um, with kind of a combo of Gary Weisner, the production designer. Right on, yeah. The cinematographer, I think, probably was the one to to bring it more, but I don't know to what extent the production designer Mm -hmm. weighed in or not, but I believe it was the production designer that added the saran wrap and whatnot, so they kind of worked together. Right on. Film is collaboration, so it makes sense, yeah. Yeah, the texture of this film. We just can't Mm. say enough about the texture and the the temperature and the tonal lights. The fact that I knew Uh, immediately where they are were in a scene geographically just based on the light temperature it's just genius so good well okay that um that is uh eight millimeter but you know one thing that really bugged me is that i don't think enough was said with this movie perhaps a sequel should take place oh the sequel <laughs> okay so there is a sequel to eight millimeter two 
in theory, there's something that is called 8mm2. It is, upon interacting with this film, it has nothing to do whatsoever with 8mm2. And never meant to, actually. It is a Budapest independent film, I think out of Budapest, that is about people who get caught up in some sort of photography black, like menage a trois photography blackmail. It shot under a different name, I think like Velvet in Hell or something like that. Mm-hmm. And production, much like Troll 2, thought, hey, you know what would be great for selling this? Let's just say it was a sequel to this other movie that came out a few years prior, even though it's not a sequel to anything. And there is no 8mm anything in this film. Like, 8mm is never a thing in this wow photographic black much like troll 2 has no trolls nor was it a sequel to anything <laughs> the eight millimeter two is not a sequel to anything nor does it have any eight millimeter eight film, millimeter in it. film. <laughs> yes which is pretty great okay yeah well uh in terms of sequels that didn't need to happen how would you rank uh, which which one is better s darko or eight millimeter two uh well i didn't fully end up watching 8mm2 yet because of the fact that I was like, this has nothing to do with it and I have other stuff to research, but S. Darko is so unwatchable (laughs) that I'm going to have to go with 8mm2, although, of course, Troll 2 is the best sequel of all time to anything, so. You you go ahead and get up on that hill and die on that hill, London. I will. One day. Do that. One day. Oh, God, boy. I want a safe word out, but we don't have a safe word because what safe word can you have for this movie? Uh, there is no safe word for snuff, well, so we're just going to have to let this line go dead. All right. I'm all for it, and we'll see you all, hear you all next time when we discuss Paul Thomas Anderson's 1997 pornographic masterpiece, Boogie Nights. We call that a snuff pun, what I just did there. Fuck off. Snuff pun. <laughs>
Been corrupted by capitalism. Space! <laughs> <laughs> 